podcast is brought to you by uh, 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 Here we go Everybody be cool, this is a robbery Need you cool Are you cool? Bark all day, little doggy, or are you gonna bite? Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? I'm a killer. I'm a murdering bastard, you know that? And there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. You really only need to hang mean bastards. But mean bastards, you need to hang. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I'ma get medieval on your ass. You're the son of this? Nah, I don't think so. More like chewed out. I've been chewed out before. Hey, is everybody okay? The fucking hippies aren't. That, that's for goddamn sure. Kill white folks and they pay you for it. It's not the life. Starting to see pictures, ain't you? Gentlemen, you have my curiosity. Now you have my attention. Welcome back, all you inglorious bastards, to your monthly worship service where we help rejuvenate your soul through the works of our Lord and Savior, Quentin Tarantino. I am the Reverend Scott K, and this is the Church of Tarantino podcast. This month, we continue our journey through the good works of Tarantino by taking a look at a movie he wrote but did not direct. I'm talking about Tony Scott's True Romance. But before we dive into that, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome my special guest, coming to us all the way from across the pond in Crawley, England. It's Mr. Petros Petsilovis of the Caged In Podcast. Welcome, Mr. Petsilovis, and may Tarantino be with you always. Uh, I feel blessed. I feel I feel honored and blessed <laughs> to, be, to be drinking from the... Uh, from the sacramental cup of uh, the Tarantino, it's yeah to be to be eating the the body of Christ himself. Yes, the, um, <laughs> the the body of Q Christ. Yes, I almost called this the Church of Q just to see how people would react <laughs> to this, and I, just to like steal listeners and people jump in thinking they're going to get some kind of QAnon shit, and all of a sudden like are they talking about Tarantino? And then it'd been great just to see if they like turned it into something like was it John F Kennedy Jr. supposed to be alive or some crazy shit that they get into. It'd have been fun, yeah. but at never the end, <laughs> I, I decided not to. Now, you and I have been on uh, two different podcasts together. We, myself and Matt, when I was with him, we were on your podcast, Cajun Podcast, because for those of you who don't know, uh, I started off doing a Nicolas Cage podcast. So <laughs> it's interesting. I'm combining two of my favorite things right now. I'm talking to someone who also is a huge Cage fan, but I'm also now doing it on my favorite director. So it's like I'm marrying two worlds into one, which is what I've always and hoping for, and I know that Tarantino <laughs> says tennis is last, so I'm really, really hoping that he is going to find a role for Mr. Cage to play, because I absolutely think the two of them together would be absolute gold. I truly do, because Cage is willing to do anything. He will go to any lengths for his character. He pulls zero punches, and whether people like him or not, he's always very true in his movies. And what we said, and I'm sure you probably covered on yours, but we used to say that he's always the best thing, even in a shitty film. And a lot of times it looks like a shitty film because he is trying yeah. to carry people to the finish line, trying to get anything <laughs> out of them. And they're just giving him very staccato notes and nothing. But it's uh, it's good to have you back because then you were on ours as well. And uh, it was the last one we did. Oddly enough, when we put the two episodes that you kind of were on together, we called it The Whole Bloody Affair. In reference to what should have been when Kill Bill was originally supposed to be re-released 
as one big DVD called The Whole Bloody Affair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what actually happened there is I came on to your podcast and just tried to tried to put it in your head that there were too many Nicolas Cage podcasts just because I didn't want people stomping on my patch. I very much had a um, a Jets attitude to it. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play it, play it cool. I'm gonna almost <laughs> like, yeah, get 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 involved. Feel like I'm on your side. I'm gonna very much be like the cops in this movie. Like, don't worry, Elliot, we're we're with you. We're, exactly. we're, we're with you. We got your back. We got your back. Um, Seriously, then, no fucking around. We're the best. What we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that 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 was very much my attitude going on to that podcast. No, but uh, in, in regards to Nick Cage on in a Tarantino movie, it's very interesting because I have like a, a question that I've like reel out sometimes on the podcast. Normally for like Patreon bonuses, uh, I always ask, "What is the one director, living or dead?" that people would love to see Nicolas Cage work with. And I think at the moment, like, Tarantino is the one that's been picked the most. It just makes sense. You could almost have Nicolas Cage play Tarantino in a biopic. You know what I mean? Like, he could totally pull off Tarantino and his mannerisms and his eccentricities, and I just think they would be absolute gold together. I just really do. I think if Tarantino had directed uh, True Romance, like, Mm. I don't think we would have had Val Kilmer as elvis i think like because tarantino seems savvy enough to know that nick cage like probably is this like or probably would have known that nicholas cage is this massive elvis fan and like yes would have definitely have seen wild at heart where he's basically yes. doing elvis and gone oh that's my that's my elvis do you know what i mean i've kind of got yeah. the i've got the connection to another great director with um david lynch kind of using one of yeah. the alumni in my movie and stuff like that and it would have been yeah and this film Almost, almost in the Clarence role as well, because I find there's there's parallels, and we'll sure we'll get yeah. into it. No, I know what you parallels mean. between this film and something like Wild at Heart. They kind of feel of a kin, like especially in that early nineties. Yes, yes. There's there's a clothing and a vehicle a choices that definitely seem the two directors uh, seem to have an affection for, for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Both have that love for kind of nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties kind of um, ephemera music and stuff like yes. that. So kind of see them both hanging singing from the same hymn sheet so, yeah i definitely feel like cage i can only i've tried to speculate in the past what a nicholas cage like what would be the last tarantino movie and how nicholas cage would fit into it and i guess like now because almost once upon a time in hollywood feels like a great last movie do you know what i mean it yeah, kind of no yeah well, I saw in an interview with him recently, he feels like that's like his big crescendo. And now the next movie doesn't have to be as big because it's just going to be his epilogue. But, you know, Tarantino, he's full of shit. <laughs> 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 you know, I mean, like the man, the man loves stuff. So but he does have a family now and he's got, you know, a wife and a young son. And we'll see. I mean, you know, I mean, he could also go into writing, which he's done as well. So but I do hope that he gets a chance because... I mean, I think he could have been great in The Hateful Eight. However, I do love all the people in The Hateful Eight, so it's hard, you know. It's always hard to plug and play somebody because you have an idea of what it is. But once someone's already done the role, and if they do the role well, it's hard to pluck someone out and say, well, this one could have done it as well. You, do you know, like... You start to think about, like, the butterfly effect yes. on people's careers as well. Yeah. And I don't like... I kind of always think about, yeah, but if that, if, like, Nicolas Cage had been in Pulp Fiction, whatever, his career could have been totally different. He might not have gone and done the rock face off and uh Conor no, probably not that. yeah his career could have gone something different like yeah 
It's funny you say that my, my last guest, when we were talking on the Reservoir Dogs, uh, our first episode, we were talking about how Harvey Keitel was supposed to, he was originally cast in Apocalypse Now, and he got fired, and Martin Sheen was brought in, and we were saying, well, what if he had gone forward, you know, and had the career trajectory that that movie kind of pushed Martin Sheen and made him so popular, and I was thinking, well, if that had happened, there would be no Reservoir Dogs. There may not even be a Quentin Tarantino because without Harvey Keitel seeing this script, he never would have gotten this script in his hands if he's a big, you know, if he's making these huge movies, he's the guy that he, you that, know, was able to help. Uh, otherwise, that career trajectory goes that way. What we're talking about now, this podcast isn't even happening right now. So in some other oh, yeah. multiverse, you and I are not talking. This podcast yeah. is dead. And there is no Quentin Tarantino. He's still a, he may be a cracked out um, homeless uh, video store clerk. Now the video stores have gone the way of the dinosaur. Yeah, I, like uh, that That kind of sends shivers down my spine thinking of a world without Bad Lieutenant, the uh, the Abel Ferrara version, because I think, I think, I don't know. Uh, sometimes not getting those big roles makes people hungry and slightly in like not 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 in the negative way, but kind of a bit like fuck this, like fuck Hollywood. Oh, agree, and, agree. And then go do these more interesting yeah. projects. So yeah, without a Harvey Keitel. Yeah, because he, he's definitely the biggest name in that movie right at that time. Well, yeah, so. when he got the script, you know, originally Quentin was just going to do it with some friends. And then when he got the script, this the, like the budget went from like 60000 to $1.5 or $2 million. Whatever, and then Harvey, you know, signs on. He's Mr. White. And then that's that. That's it. You know, and that's why we're here. We're here 30 years later almost. Well, 30 years when they're listening to this, but not right now. It's been 30 years since uh, Reservoir Dogs uh, made its debut, which is actually probably a good segue for me to ask because... Because since we are kind of talking about Mr. Coppola, you have sidetracked your podcast. Mm -hmm. Now, have you finished all the movies of Nicolas Cage? Did you include the four that were brought out this year into the old form of your podcast? Or have you decided to go with the Coppola connections and maybe you'll swing back to those ones? Because, you know, there's a new one coming out, obviously, in, in April, which looks absolutely amazing. I cannot <laughs> wait. For the weight of massive talent. Cannot wait for that. Are you... Now on a new path, or are you going to bring those back into the fold? That, no, so I, I I set myself like the rule that if like uh, just to be like loyal to my to my like original listeners and stuff like that, I was just I always said to myself if there's a new Nicolas Cage film, I will like that takes precedent. Like depending on depending on the accessibility of it and stuff like that. Like if it's something I can like buy or rent or is like easy for me to see, like maybe like a couple of times, like cause sometimes it's hard to go to a movie theater kind of try and remember everything then write down all your notes because I want to almost do the films justice when it comes to covering them on an episode but like this year with everything the way kind of the releases have been like whether it's Willy's Wonderland like I got amazing access to to get that film I think I got it maybe like three or four weeks earlier than the movie even came out um Pig was very similar yep. like the guys at Neon were amazing with that I got to see prisoners of the Ghostland at the like the european premiere so i've yeah every time there's a new like nicholas cage film and with pig as well because i got such great access with that and then off my own back reached out to people who are involved so i ended up doing a kind of mini series called the caged in pig cast where i just interviewed loads of people involved in that movie so i spoke to david Nell, who plays the um restaurateur that nicholas cage has that kind of like yeah scene with in the middle of the movie yeah. i spoke to him i spoke to uh, the co-writer and producer on the movie vanessa block i spoke to brett buckman the editor who also edited color out of space and mandy who uh, we kind of ended up talking about how he's created this 
he's edited this Nick Cage Man of the Woods trilogy almost. <laughs> uh, and then um, I spoke to the film's composers, so uh, Philip Klein and Alexis Grapsis, and I spoke to Chris Zarnecki, who is the guy who Nicolas Cage, like, shadowed to learn how to cook. Oh, wow. And I think I can say it now, because this is going out in uh, January, there'll be a bonus episode, because January is dedicated... To Nick, because it's his birthday. Because it's his birthday. January 7th, in case anyone didn't know. Revisiting four older Nicolas Cage films, basically, to kind of... Oh, nice. Give them, like, a... Because the format's changed since I've covered a lot of them, and it's a chance for me to speak with guests about them, like... A lot of those early ones I did solo and stuff like that. So it's like having more of a discussion about them. So, yeah, the films I'll be covering uh, so far, like there's a couple still up in the air, but the ones I can definitely say is Red Rock West from 1993 oh, nice. and Deadfall from 1993 as well. We'll also Love be Deadfall. It's the greatest worst movie <laughs> ever made. It truly is. We covered it. It's the greatest worst movie ever ever made. I think it's his most bad shit performance, dude. Just, yeah, it's definitely, so definitely. It's so amazing. Anyone gets a chance to see it, the best part is watching Nicolas Cage and when he's not on screen, you're like, alright, you, you don't want to watch any more of the movie. Like, when he's on, you don't know what the fuck's about to happen. It's so it's so great. That one works perfectly kind of with what I'm doing now, looking at the films of the Coppola family as well, because it's directed by Nicolas Cage's brother, Chris. Yes. So it has yes. Coppola connections within it. And yeah, I, uh, in January, I'll be interviewing uh, Michael Zarnowski, the director of Pig as well, to kind of... Oh, very cool. It feels like a very... Inter- uh, like, with kind of uh, the film leading up to award season and stuff like that. Not that they really matter, Which but, it like, got snubbed for Golden Globe. Although, do yeah. anyone care about the... Like, the Golden Globes have really fallen off really badly since, you know, I don't know if anyone's even going to carry them this year or if anyone's going to show. But for the fact that they didn't even... That didn't even get nominated. I don't know. that If he doesn't get nominated... I, I've seen a lot of performances this year, and yes, I'm a little shaded and jaded, obviously, because it is Nicholas, but I can't think of another person who has such a jaw-dropping, late-career-defining moment than his role in Pig. It's absolutely... Mm-hmm. And the movie itself, we talked about it, because we got a chance to do it on Watch Us or Die. We got a screener of it, and it was one of those movies where you go in thinking one thing, and it flips it on you. Like, you think you're going to see some kind of Nicolas Cage revenge film in the in the vein of Mandy, and realize it's so much deeper, so much more intellectual than that, and like, they've really set you up, and you go in, and you're like, okay, at any minute now, he's going to lose his shit because of this pig, and it yeah, completely yeah. floors you with how they end up handling it, and it's just so amazing. He was just beautiful in the film, and if yeah. he doesn't get some recognition, it's going to be like another year, where like when Sandler didn't get recognized by the Academy in, in, uh, in right, Uncut yeah. Gems, yeah. I've, yeah, I, I, well, I, you would imagine, like, because I keep seeing loads of, like, announcements, like, Neon retweeting them and stuff like that in regards to, like, Critics' Choice Awards. So it would be, like, uh, Las Vegas Critics Association, the yeah. Kentucky. All these different uh, critics associations are kind of like they're announcing their best actor and it will be Nicolas Cage or like best script will be uh, like Pig or debut feature or something like that. It goes to Michael Zarnowski. So even just talking to him about those aspects and kind of having a film that first film out of the gate that really kind of blew people's socks off and just to be able to kind of, I don't know, talk talk to from from what i've seen he's a really humble and nice guy and what it was like to kind of have this idea for a film and the next thing you know you're working with hollywood legend (laughs) nicholas cage yeah right speaking of first film in hollywood legend (laughs) are you an actual huge tarantino fan or just a casual fan um 
I would st- I, I, I would say I'm a big fan. Like, I know it can be very much like a, I don't know, it almost feels like some people make you feel like it's a guilty pleasure, like, these days. I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of like you have to put your finger to the wind a lot of time and figure out what is the what is the flavor of the week on is tarantino a good guy is tarantino a bad guy and it's i I think one of those things that kind of irks me a bit is you see those memes that go around like if a guy has one of these like four posters on his walls run for the hills and it will like pulp fiction's one of them and stuff like that and it's oh one of those red flag things that people got going on now those yeah 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 yeah, yeah. they they can stick those red flags up their ass that's that you've heard it from me fuck that's a film should not does not define who a human being is (laughs) you know yeah 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 yeah. and that yeah, that feels like a very uh, pertinent thing in regards to true romance, um, which I'm sure we'll get into. But no, I would say I would say like I'm a I'm a devotee. Like the only film I haven't seen of his, and it's it's more just out of I think at the time I wasn't really going to the cinema that much, and then it's I don't know like not 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 a matter of finding because there's, like, there's loads of like great films I haven't seen, and if you listen to my podcast, I've never seen The Godfather two. So uh... wow. <laughs> And you're doing a yeah, Coppola yeah. connection. Well, you better get on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, well, it's coming. It's coming. But I thought that would save it. Do you know what I mean? Like, how great would it be that uh, you think how many podcasts it's people going, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. At least I have the unique experience of being, hey, I've never watched this movie before. Here's my first reaction to it. Uh, yeah, I've never seen The Hateful Eight. But, like, uh, really? I think, like... Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Literally the like opening week of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I was there. I got to see Django. I was working at a cinema at the time, and uh, they did like a staff showing like the night before, like basically like mm-hmm. midnight, but the day before it came out and stuff like that. So I got to see it early. Glorious Bastards. I think that was the first movie I saw in the cinema just because of how old I am. And like mm-hmm. I think that was literally the first one I was <laughs> able to see. But yeah, I remember like pulp fiction like yeah i've got a really like i think pulp fiction is the first 18 certificate dvd i ever bought and oh, wow. i was 13 years old and i remember this like what such a like a precocious little dickhead i was at 13 as well i remember standing in a silver screen was the name of the shop with jackie brown in one hand and uh pulp fiction in the other like trying to weigh up like oh which one do i buy H- hadn't seen either of them was, <laughs> this is my like month's pocket money right now like it's what you back in the days when dvds were like eight <laughs> pounds do you know, I mean? know. Like, when they were when they were like expensive and it was like this is a this is a commitment and yeah so made a really big impression on me but then when you asked me to be on this podcast and i kind of started to uh look back and i know this is this is on the question like my introduction to yeah that's yeah so what yeah what is your entrance to the tarantino <laughs> universe since you're on it right here uh it is it, 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 i think it is true romance and like i again i have a very vivid memory like i wouldn't say i was somewhat like a a latchkey kid but i was definitely i was a child of divorce and i've got uh siblings who are five years older than me but like, I think the time my dad left, like they weren't old enough to like look after me, or like kind of had social engagements. Like on, on a Friday, I'd be <laughs> kind of given to different of my like my mum's friends and stuff like that to kind of like look after me. And I remember being around one of my mum's friends' house and seeing like I'm trying to think it was VHS. It might have been DVDs because this would have been 2001, 2002 times. So I think DVDs were big then 
I remember they had Batman Returns and I remember they had True Romance and kind of they like it'd be a Friday night so they would kind of be like socializing in the dining room and stuff like that and it'd be like hey do you want to go upstairs and play on like uh, our kids like PlayStation do that or do you want to go do you want to like sit in the lounge and watch a movie and there was something I think I remember I'm trying to think what the cover was of the DVD. It probably was the the poster where he is peeking out from behind the, the like when he's coming out of the bathroom and he's got like the yes. gun in his hand. I think that's like the and then like they superimpose her next to him kind of thing. But yeah, I think that's the original cover before they did the whole heart tattoo one and the new ones they've got out there. That's that's definitely it. Yeah, because I've got I've got a DVD here in front of me which is the like the black cover with like the kind of them inside the words true romance. Yes, yeah. like. And it would have been, it would have been as well. It would have been a um, an edited down version because I think for for a few years in the UK it was edited down in regards to some yeah, of the you didn't violent. get the yeah you didn't get the director's cut yeah that's yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's so step, we, it steps it up a lot and to me it's the only version to watch I don't even remember the original version but the director's cut is the one to have well I think now in circulation in the UK that like you can't really it's now it would probably be the curio is that old cut of it, do you know what I mean? And there probably are, I don't know, I imagine, yeah. I know there's an Arrow release of the film over here, so I, I'd imagine that probably has both versions on it just for hardened collectors and stuff like that. But, oh yeah, I remember watching it and kind of being blown away. And, like, at that point, I don't think I would have known who Tarantino was, but there was just something about the film that was like, oh, I like, I really like what this <laughs> film is doing knew none of the references like the kind of like noirish intro like yeah. the kind of like yeah. dirty streets like uh shadows and like a femme fatale character and so had none of that i just kind of got swept away in it and the kind of because it, it moves at a clip and like this <laughs> when you when you're thinking to yourself in this film you know what this is like a roller coaster ride yeah you look up yeah. at the screen Oh, and the characters are on a roller coaster. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> I, I think, I've, yeah, I, I just remember finding it, like, so, like, endearing and kind of, I don't know, like, as a 11-year-old, like, kind of being like, is this what is this what love is like? Am I going to, like, just meet someone and in two days I'm going to have to marry her and then shoot a guy in the face? Yeah, kill, like, kill her pimp and then take the drugs and go sell them across the country. That's I mean, yeah. come on. If this, is <laughs> if this is what it's going to have to be, then this is what it's going to have to be. I think. Yeah, I think that was that was kind of like so it really. I think it really opened my eyes to, to <laughs> just sort of intrigue. It kind of weirdly reminded me because I've, I've around the similar time. I've been massively into um, uh, the last action hero with Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> And like, so like in in my brain, it kind of because it's like about a, a guy who's like obsessed to going to the movie theater and stuff like that, like yeah. on his own and yeah. stuff. In my head, it was like, oh, that's maybe that's the life I want. And as a thirty-year-old man, I do spend a lot of my time alone in the movie theater. So maybe I am a mixture of <laughs> both. Clarence, yeah, without the. Without the killing, uh, <laughs> killing pimps and uh... give yourself time though. <laughs> <laughs> we can all we can we can all but dream. You might graduate to it. <laughs>
This movie is the same for me. Um, it was my introduction, and how I knew it was Tarantino is I'm a little bit older than you. I got to see this in the theater, and then was so enamored with it. When the VHS came out, I bought it, and I remember on the back of the VHS cassette, in the blurb, it said, from the creator of Reservoir Dogs, and that's mm-hmm. all I needed. And I went and found Reservoir Dogs, and then that's that. That's literally, that's the domino that fell. But yeah, True Romance was, was everything. Now, is this your favorite Tarantino movie as well? Or do you no. have one that's more in your endearing to you? Yeah, the, the, I kind of not. The thing is, it's, it's really like looking through these questions. I was like, these are fucking hard because like my favorite will probably like recency bias will come into it a lot yep. of the time. Oh yeah, it'll, it'll change. It could change what you just last watched. Yeah, like even thinking about it, I thought if I had to rank them, True Romance is one or two for me. Like I, I you know, I, you forget that. I mean, technically he wrote it, but it's pretty strict. It pretty stays true to what he wrote. Obviously, they don't jump time like in his original script, but it's pretty, except for the ending, which we'll talk about. It's pretty straight on to what he wrote, mm-hmm. and you can tell just by when you watch it. And because it's so endearing to me as well, it's like, ooh, I always like put like Pulp Fiction there, and I'm like, is it Pulp Fiction? It's a true romance. Like, ooh, it's like the chicken or the egg. Like, would I like Pulp Fiction if it wasn't for true romance? You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. it is a hard, it's you know, it's a hard debate to figure out. And I, and it's that thing of like which is like the best made, and it's like, can you count this as a Tarantino mo- movie? Like, I kind of started to think of like his like, and then I just like so my answer is not necessarily my favorite. It's the one I've watched the most and kind of like the experience around watching it that I kind of loved and uh, the the simpatico of kind of life outside of the movie that kind of made it uh, made it that much more special. So uh, it's Django Unchained because that would have come out like what January well, it would have come, come out, out like Christmas, Christmas Day in 2012. So like it, it, it was a couple of, it was a couple of weeks later here. It was a January release in the UK, and I remember we had had like the heaviest snow we'd had in years so i remember going to watch it kind of trudging through the snow and then going to this midnight screening and it's one of the rare times i've gone out and bought a soundtrack for a movie kind of like love the soundtrack and i think like it was kind of anyone and everyone who would come with me to watch it like i watched it like a handful of times in the movie theater kind of being like i love this like kind of there's something that like i think around the time i versed myself up on spaghetti westerns and stuff like that and it was it's something exciting about it and i think yeah just because the title yeah as i said like I remember I went out day one, bought like the still book, like <laughs> Blu-ray of it, and then had a. It was when you could get, like you had a digital code for it, so I had it on yep. my iPad, and it was kind of became like a comfort film for me and stuff like that. So I think, yeah, as I said, it's not necessarily my favorite, but it's the one I watch the most and have possibly the most fun with. But then, it's I a great. Know. It's a lot of fun to watch. <laughs> That's what has endeared me to Tarantino so much is. All of his movies, they're just enjoyable to watch in, in their own unique ways. And while there, he has tropes and there are things he likes to do, they all feel very unique and very different. You know, like they just really do. Like even in Kill Bill, even though he broke it up into two, but considers it one, the first half is total kung fu homage. The second half is totally spaghetti western. And it's just brilliant. And You know, it's just it's brilliant. He does such amazing stuff. And I think some people don't like him because... People talk so highly of him, but he does things that other directors don't, which will bring me to yep. this question for you, because all directors have their movies. That you're like, eh. For me in Tarantino world, it's, you know, like you said, every time you watch one, it could be better. But what is your most under 
appreciated Tarantino film? What do you think is his most underappreciated film? Because, you know, if you make a list of even just the nine he directs, there's always got to be seven, eight, nine. And then even then sometimes when you say that seven, eight, nine, you kind of almost feel like you're like, you're not giving them the proper credit. You know what I mean? Like when I have to try to list that, I'm like, I feel like I'm actually being rude to these three films because I absolutely love them, but I've got to put them in an order. And it's like, God. It's like if you had nine yeah, kids, you go, well, these three shits right here, I guess I'll put down at this bottom. Uh, yeah, but I think like his worst film is better than a lot of directors. Ex- exactly. Best. Thank uh, you. I wanted someone else to say because otherwise it just sounds like I'm just, you know, <laughs> just bowing yeah, down forever. Like, there are directors out there who, who don't, like, I guess just just from, like, popular opinion, I know that the hate for late is kind of seen as, is like, like, but, like, for a lot of people don't like it. And, like, from what I've said of it, like, do you know what I mean? Like, trailers and kind of, like, clips from it and stuff like that. It's fantastic. It really is. You need to see it. It looks looks a lot better than, do you know what I mean? Like, and and even down down to, like, even down to the technicals, do you know what I mean? It's, like, it it looks better than, like, loads of movies. So, like, um, but I think the most, I think there's a correct answer for what is the most underappreciated. It is a film, I think... People have retrospectively gone, oh, it's actually really, it's actually really good. But I think at the time it was slept on, and I think even now, like, it's not the first one that comes to people's lips when they talk about a Tarantino. And it's Jackie Brown, because it, it, it yeah. is, I, I think that's the correct answer for underappreciated, because it, it almost, like in a way that uh, True Romance is a film that he wrote and didn't directed, yeah. so don't really bring it up. I think Jackie Brown, because it's, Based, it's the only one that's yeah. based, based on, on, on someone else's yeah stuff, yeah, by Rum Punch. Yeah, they kind of don't give it its due of kind of being a film de Tarantino. It's kind of but like he a, totally a, takes the book and makes it his own. Like, like exactly, he yeah. took he takes the the structure of the story, but all the dialogue is all his. There is no AK forty seven speech from Ordell Roby in the book. There, you know, none of that stuff. Jackie's actually white. And her last name's not Brown. He changed her to be a black woman, and he named her Brown after Foxy Brown because he had this role in mind for Pam Greer. So yeah, yeah. he just made that happen. I would agree. Like, I have my own, but I, I agree. Jackie Brown is definitely one of those that just doesn't give due. And I think some of it could be, too, and we kind of have mentioned this before, is it falls between Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill. Easily two of his top, if you put him in the top three, those two usually fall in the top three. You know, usually <laughs> it's Pulp Fiction and then probably Kill Bill's number two right behind it. Like if people were to pick like the two best of his, those would be the two ones that just stand out. So, you know, Jackie Brown, of course, is going to get lost because, and it's weird because one of the ones I think is Death Proof, but that falls between Kill Bill and then Inglorious Bastards. Like that's, those are two monster movies as well. Like it's, they get lost in the shuffle because they're both very simplistic and great films, but then you've got the spectacle of those movies that come before and after it that just sometimes mm-hmm. dwarf it. You know, it's, it's hard to live up to that regalia. And they're both films that put Tarantino in somewhat like director jail for a little period of his career because they did like because Jackie Brown wasn't kind of the triumph that uh, Pulp Fiction was and kind of was like for a lot of people a bit more of the same this story of kind of LA scumbags kind of like wheeling and dealing and stuff like that people kind of I think had the assumption like oh is the lead do you know what I mean? Is, is the lead run out in the pencil? Is this is this all this guy has got to, got to talk about? So like, it didn't financially or kind of critically at the time do do, do what what people would have expected it to do. But like looking back, and that's like the the great thing of hindsight. You kind of look back on it and go, oh no, it's 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 yeah, actually it's really great. Good. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, before we jump into it, then, who is your all-time favorite character from the Tarantino-verse? And I know that is like, that's like throwing a dart at a dartboard to pick him sometimes because there are just so many memorable characters that he's written and that have come up on the screen that, man, you could almost have a battle royale and have him fight it out to, to, to pick one. I think it's got to be Hans Lander from uh, from Inglorious Bastards just because, one, it is the fact that <laughs> Tarantino has written this dialogue to be spoken in a different language. Manages to, manages to direct Christoph It's a Waltz. foreign film. Like, yeah. <laughs> I think there's more, there's more French... Uh, Italian German. and German spoke, and then there really is English for most of the film. Yeah. That's the genius of it. Like, it really is a, a fucking foreign film for the for the most part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's definitely, yeah, it definitely is a foreign language. And I think, like, that character, just through, like, the sheer joy and menace, like, that character delivers is just, it's unparalleled. Like, do you know what I mean? He, Agreed. I think he, he can easily walk into the Hall of Fame of bad guys and and like shoulder to shoulder he makes a glass of milk and waiting for cream two of the scariest things yeah. that have ever happened in your life the milk scene is just amazing it's just amazing it really builds such tension but it's mm-hmm. the cream it's the middle after shoshana's gotten away and we think he might know wait for the cream and he just kind of sits there i had something i wanted to ask you and he smokes and he's got that look of like he knows and then he goes I can't think of what it, like oh just his beats and the way he does. yeah it's traumatizing like it's unbelievable you know I mean I it's just never in, um, impending do and he doesn't have to do it with any major costumes or and he's a small guy and honestly he's a, really a shorter guy yeah, he, you know, he, yeah. doesn't, he doesn't he's not imposing he's not Darth Vader he's not like the Terminator he's not an imposing figure but it's just that wit and that and he's not even like menacing like bad like it's that cold whisper in your ear that he kind of like his performance almost is as opposed to like I'm gonna scream and shout it is this kind of like I'm like ten steps ahead of this conversation. Yes. I'm humoring you in the yeah. conversation. And <laughs> yeah. it's like, it's, it's almost that Hitchcockian idea of like the bomb under the table. And yeah, like, absolutely. Like, it's cleverly done that the audience isn't, doesn't know. Like, do you know what I mean? He kind of plays it so well that the audience doesn't know if he does know. You, like, especially in those yep. two, two moments you talk about, like the strudel scene and like the kind of opening. Well, that's the genius of it because what we learn in the opening, we think he then in the strudel scene knows. You know what I mean? Like we're like, oh shit, yeah. he's about to. Like as an audience member, you just you're holding your breath, like oh fuck, yeah. and that's it. And then you're like, fuck, I don't think I can have a strudel or cream ever again. <laughs> you know, <It's> like, <laughs> oh shit, not only I can do this anymore, it's too tense. I think it might be tied into the facts as well that like I'm a man, I'm a man who enjoys his food, and like I think that is that strudel is possibly one of the most appealing plates of food I've ever seen. Oh, I know. Like, I know, and he was film? right. The cream made it even look better. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, 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 I just think it's a fantastically written character, and it's like it's fantastically performed by Christoph Waltz as well. Like, agreed, hundred percent. He has, he has like some absolutely bonkers lines in that as well, and he's just like, it's a bingo. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, just, and it's, 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 it's weird. That's why he won the Academy Award. Like, it's so deserved. So (laughs) deserved. So deserved. Here's some fucking facts, Jack. I like to give little uh, tidbits so people can kind of get a little uh, extra in the movies. So my first is... Fucks given. Do you know how many times the word fuck is used in true romance? 
How many times the word fuck? Uh, got 97. 234 times. Yeah, what 97 felt yeah. like? Yeah. <laughs> 97 was like the first uh, hour and an hour of the, of the film is what he says. It. Body count. Do you know how many bodies, the body count for this film? Oh, uh, 22? That's a bingo. <laughs> right on the money. 22 oh, wow. is oh. the right number. <laughs> you absolutely did it. <laughs> I don't. I didn't even yeah. know that. Even it's just like crazy. I was doing the mental arithmetic in my head, going right. This amount of guys walking. This amount of cops yep. walking. Can stand off. There's Drexel. There's da da da. It's like yep. <laughs> nice job. Well done. Ooh, some bare feet sightings. Now, as we know, Tarantino has a bit of a foot fetish. In two of the movies that he's directed, there are zero sightings of feet. In this movie that he wrote, there are no bare feet of women, and thank God men, that we see in this film. They do not do any toenail painting or anything like that. There definitely would have been if Tarantino had directed this. There's no doubt in my mind that Patricia Arquette would have been doing her toes. or something. There was, They definitely would have seen Patricia Arquette's feet 100%, but we do <laughs> not see any feet in this film, especially not men's feet. Uh, we. Oh, my last guest we talked about, we're just not appealing to look at I'm glad that he is not gone into showing <laughs> men's feet at any point. Next up, the motherfucking Tarantino-verse. In the Tarantino-verse, there are four connections in this film. And one that is an almost connection. And I'm going to explain to you. Number one. Our first, Alabama Whirly, as I mentioned in the last podcast, is mentioned in Reservoir Dogs by Mr. White in mm -hmm. a conversation he has with Joe. Uh, we learn that after the true events of, and we'll get into in this film, of how this movie was supposed to end, Alabama moves on with her life, and then she is eventually romantically and professionally connected to Mr. White for a while. Number two. Our second one, Mr. Lee Donowitz, the movie producer in this film is the grandson of Sergeant Donnie Donowitz, the Bear Jew from Inglorious Bastards. So his grandfather's in World War II. He goes on to make uh, Vietnam movies later on in the 90s <laughs> <laughs> in Hollywood. Checks out. It checks out. Number three. Now, this is a very meta-crazy tie-in. True Romance was the script. So in the original movie, it was called... Uh, the Open Road. The Open Road. Thank you for, for remembering. And I'm here I am doing the podcast, and this guy's over in Nicolas Cage world, and he's just dropping it in. But that's what a Nicolas Cage person does. He has all the <laughs> crazy information. Uh, in the original Open Road, Natural Born Killers was the first part of the movie. True Romance is a script that was turned into a movie that they're trying to stop. At the end of the movie, it was like a, almost like an 800-page script. They broke it into two. But originally, True Romance was written by... A character who was supposed to be like not really the guy who's from American Maniacs, played by Robert Downey Jr., but another person follows him around, writes a movie about them. Mickey and Mally try to stop that once they escape. The, you know, the movie True Romance that then becomes yeah. the next part of it is the movie that he wrote while on the run away from those two. So I'm glad they broke it up into two films because yeah, when you see the two films, they, they're definitely different movies. But it would have been such a weird, like, about face to have Natural Born Killers suddenly end and turn into true romance. That would have been a very strange pivot. Well, when this script began, because there's kind of, I know that there's a lot of, like, contention over, like, uh, I, I guess it's the whole thing with Pulp Fiction as well, where, in regards to Roger Avery, who kind of... I guess he, he like, started the story for Open Road, but then he handed it to Tarantino, yeah, who, and Tarantino kind of polished it up. Well, it's 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 it's, it's kind of from both of their minds, right? Because yeah. Tarantino yeah. had my uh, my best friend's birthday. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So the opening of my best friend's birthday is the opening of True Romance. So there's a lot yeah, yeah. of things together. Well, I mean, they both won. 
they both won the Oscar in Pulp Fiction because they both got writing credit for Pulp Fiction, so they both wrote it together. And they're still very, and they're very good friends still. I've heard word that they're planning a podcast, which I think will just they kind absolutely of... are. They were just on the Pure Cinema podcast. When you're listening to this, this will be in February, so this happened in December. They're on the Pure Cinema podcast. The two of them were talking together with the guys who host that, and they went through their favorite movies that they just came upon this year. And those guys watch movies all the time. They worked at the same video store together. Yep. It's insane. So they, yeah, they have a very close relationship. So Tarantino helped produce um, one of his first movies, which is a very good movie with Eric Stoltz in it called Killing Zoe. Fantastic mm-hmm. film. So yeah, those two are very much together. But this movie was a part of a twofer. A twofer. Yeah, I I know that there was a the, at one point there was um, talks of like it being a like mini series length script. So yes. they kind of yeah, which again would have been a, such a fucking pivot. Yeah. Like it's. Yeah, it would have been such a change. It's like two different love stories. How that would have worked, like I guess if if it had like worked is almost like it, it would have been like a mini series anthology series. With, I don't but know. Like, it had to be before that before that was a thing. Yeah, yeah three episodes are dedicated to one <laughs> exactly. story and three. Are, I don't know unless it's like two episodes. Then we get the. We get the Clarence and Alabama story, and then we get the close-off like story of the yeah. the guys from Natural Born Killers at the end. Yeah, it would have been would have been interesting. Yeah, I'm just glad it's what number four. Now Clarence's sunglasses from this film are worn by the bride after she takes them off of Buck, who came here to fuck in Kill Bill. Those are the exact same sunglasses. Now here's our little sidestep one. It's technically one, but it's not because, as I said in our first episode. The Bonnie situation. Bonnie was brought up and she was going to be part of the Reservoir Dogs movie. It's in a cut scene that never made it. So eventually Bonnie is brought in as Jimmy's wife and we get a little bit of her in Pulp Fiction. Drexel had more scenes in the original script, but they were removed. And then eventually moved to Pulp Fiction before ultimately being removed altogether. So Drexel was supposed to have more scenes in romance. They didn't like the extra scenes, so they were going to put him in basically Pulp Fiction to give him a little bit more backstory to almost say like Pulp Fiction happened first and then obviously Truman's happened next, Mm -hmm. but he never makes it there. So it's just in the ether. It's an almost. It's not a real thing, but it's something that was out there, like the Vega Brother movie that never happened. It's just... It's yeah. out there in the ether as kind of a part of the Tarantino verse, but something that never truly came to fruition. And those were the facts, Jack. And now the gospel, according to the almighty Tarantino. Chapter 2, True Romance. We are going to dive gloriously into one of my favorite Tarantino verse movies of all time. It is my gateway drug, as it is my guest. We are talking about true romance, and you can't start the movie without the opening monologue. And what is amazing about this opening monologue is you'll end up watching Reservoir Dogs first if you go in succession. And so the Mr. Brown talking about what a Like a Virgin is all about is phenomenal. But what you don't realize is that this movie technically predates it based on script time, but doesn't predate it based on when it comes out. And so the opening monologue that... Mr. Clarence Worley gives to this poor lady of the night who really doesn't care. She just wants to know, do you want to have sex or not kind of thing. She's like, are we going to, is there going to be a transaction or something possibly here? And you're not 100% sure if Clarence even realizes that she's a lady of the night. And he's basically telling her about how cool fucking Elvis is and that he's not gay. But if he had to fuck, if he had to fuck somebody, Elvis is the guy that he would fuck. And I love how she's like, I'd fuck him too. And you know, we have something in common. But it's such an amazing opening monologue. It just sets the movie up 
And in all honesty, I do believe Tarantino said this is the most autobiographical movie he's written. So there's bits yeah. of pieces of him in here. Obviously, he's taking a modern day at the time, a modern day Bonnie and Clyde, and kind of flipping it on its head. Like, instead of Bonnie and Clyde just being two people out to kill people because that's just who they are, these people are more thrown into it based on circumstances as opposed to, like, just, you know, Clarence one day decides he's going to cross the, the railroad tracks and start to become, you know, a glorified murderer before people knew what pop culture references was it started early I mean, it was just like first scene boom i hear so much i love elvis and i'm gonna tell you all about it you'd never heard anything like this in a movie unless you know you saw reservoir dogs first i think that there is an, an inherent sadness though to that speech because we get a glimpse of it that same speech him giving it to alabama yes. so it's not that cool like I don't know, it's natural and he's he's done it once. There's like an element of that it's rehearsed to Clarence yep, yep. and there is this thing that he kind of lives in his own world and there's there's a way you can read this film that like whether it's intentional or unintentional by the by Tarantino or uh, Tony Scott that it is kind of this like uh, meditation on like what happens if you do watch too many movies and kind of want to cast yourself in your like make your life a movie <laughs> yes and it's it's i think it's like we'll, we'll get to it in a bit more detail in the scene but like when he's referred to by a character as oh look this guy thinks he's charles bronson and <laughs> you can imagine in in clarence's head at least yeah. or like that there was a brilliant like kind of theory i like uh listened to about this film by um a filmmaker and podcaster sam ashurst on the arrow film podcast who said that like this whole film is because oh, obviously we get that opening closing narration from alabama that the whole film is just her telling a story so like the kind of well it's supposed to be she's basically telling this is what happened almost probably telling her son that they have mm -hmm. at the end and again it's hard to know when you get to mr white bringing her up if the events go differently and clarence uh is with us so i mean that's no secret either Cla clarence is not with us in tarantino script clarence does not make it to the end of the film yeah. alabama does she is pregnant and they have, and we find out she has a kid, and that's a whole different scene. So you don't know then if she's going to have the kid, anyways. But this feels like her telling the story. If you go with it, which makes it weird because then it becomes a different kind of connotation. But in the original script, and since he kept it in like this, she is basically telling the story to her son about her father. Hey, he's of age now, and she's going to tell how she met his dad. Basically, hey, son, like when she says, if you had told me I was going to find my true love on the highway and byways of Motor City, Detroit, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's yeah, such yeah. a great setup. But this is her telling their son that this is this is who your father is, and this is, this is how I met him, and this is what I know about him. And it makes sense that the Film is this kind of um, modern day fairy tale as well. That's my favorite romantic movie. And some people are like, what? This is a man's romantic movie. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it truly is. Like, I know women prefer their romance to be a little more rom com, a little more mm -hmm. Disney esque. Like, you know, I don't want to say just princess, but more, you know, more along the lines of this man coming to sweep them off their feet kind of thing, where this is more of a man's alley, more of like someone who's like, Oh, wait a minute, you like geek stuff? Like, you like nerd stuff? That's And that's how you know it's Tarantino. It's almost like Tarantino writing a letter like, Hey, ladies, do any of you maybe like this? Or do I have yeah. to Christian Slater for you to, like, you know, fall for me? You know what I mean? Mm, yeah, and I, I guess, like, uh, I, I don't want to get too much into this, but, like, I, I guess 
there, there can be like quite a problematic reading of this film that it is almost like this kind of movie bro male fantasy of what like what being a massive film fan could be do you know what I mean there's like a reading of this film that or you could look at it as a fantasy of like you know very rarely are stories that are of romantics told from a male's point of view or even from the male psyche. We're told from how a woman would want it because obviously romantic movies are definitely aimed more towards the female species because, you know, it's more of a movie. They're trying to pull them. That's their niche audience. So mm-hmm. when you tell a story like this, this has more elements of what men think. This is this is how the male brain would think of what a, a romantic story would be. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Even look at Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet is violent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's one of the greatest love stories of all time, but it's violent. It's two families who oppose each other vividly hate each other and you find two people who aren't from those same worlds but they love each other and they can cross that divide but at the end of the day it ends violently like that like a woman wrote that story love conquers all it it ends in a little happier tone they're not both committing suicide at the end of the oh spoiler alert in case you didn't know about Roman Juliet (laughs) spoiler alert or or as I found out like uh, whilst watching West Side Story that recently it's just it's just a remake of uh, Romeo. It's one hundred percent a remake. Like, like <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they, yeah. everyone who didn't know, yeah, they one hundred percent remade it in the fifties <laughs> to be more about you know uh, inner city New York City. Yeah, so yeah, but like yeah, I think like I always have this slight problem with that idea of like it's and it it stems back to a film. This is a bit of a tangent, but high fidelity that kind of it's not what you're like, it's what you like that matters. And <laughs> yeah, this film yeah. does have a little like. Yeah, uh, a little nugget of that. Do you know what I mean? It's like it seems like uh, Clarence is enamored by her because she likes Sonny Chiba movies, and like then again, I can totally forgive it for that. As much as kind of pointing that stuff out, I can totally forgive it for it because the film is a fairy tale. True. But could it also be that Tarantino is saying, you know, that people aren't just in these cutout squares that society says? And there are women who like comic books and other things. Like, as we're finding, especially in today's 30 years down the road, we are finding that I don't want to just call it geek culture, but pop culture. Now that, you know, it's been nicely put as pop culture, but what would be considered nerd geek culture was considered males who like lived in their basement with their mom. You know what I mean? And they never saw the light of day. And this is was their fantasy world. But there are females out there who are just as enamored with this stuff. Stuff, and that aren't just like, oh, I just want my hair and in pretty pigtails and where I want a, a male to come save me. Because as this movie goes on, she is no damsel in distress. And we end up finding out that she is the first strong female character that he writes. Now, she may start off as a looking like a damsel in distress, but damn, if she doesn't fucking show us that she is made of fucking, fucking hard coffin nails in a scene that we're going to get into. You know? It's somewhat, I'm trying to play devil's advocate and kind of try. Trying to look at the ways that, like, do you know what I mean? This film could be read because I'm trying to, like, I don't know, not, not to be like, uh, not that I think woke is a bad term, but like to be like overly like, well, I'm trying to think, like, oh, how does it look through 2021 eyes or 2022 eyes when this is out? But like, this, uh, just this idea of like looking at all these different ways this film could be looked at and i think if you have a problem with that kind of relationship stuff in the middle this film does a very good job of kind of flipping that on its head and showing you some really interesting stuff later on in the film 
I really want to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, it shows that the, each each person's there for the other person. Like there is true romance, you know. Like he does something for her, and in return, she, you know, what I mean, they they both have each other's back in the film. Because they, you know what I mean? Right? They're like they're, they're kind of like exactly they are, and it's, it's brilliant because then when they finally do meet. Once they get past this opening scene, you know, and he goes to his Sonny Chiba, which... So when Matt and I covered this on our Watch This or Die podcast back in, I think, May, I asked him this question. I'm going to ask you. Because he would go to his, a movie on his birthday. <laughs> I had go to a movie on my birthday every year that I can that there's not a COVID incident. So in 2020, I couldn't. But this year, I did, which was just recently. And I'm going to 100% say, and Matt did eventually say the same, it's because of this film. It's because that suddenly was put in my mind. I'm already a huge film fan, but it was like there was just something about being a film fan. And just like the day of my birth, what I like to do is go enjoy the thing that I love the most, mm-hmm. which is going to the movies. And good or bad, I'm born in December, so... As of late, you get great movies coming out around my birthday time. Usually it's that last big push. It's either a big tentpole movie for Christmas or the last big push for the Oscars. And so I've been lucky, even though I have shitty weather and I'm close to Christmas, that is my one savior. So I ask you, do you go to movies on your birthday? And if so, did this movie play any role in that because of him going to the, not just one, but a triple feature of Sonny Chiba Street Fighter films? Um, I don't, but... I do do a thing on uh, New Year's Eve where I like to kind of hold back on a film that would have been important this year or kind of like, like look for a film that I know is going to be good and like think like I'm, I'm past the point of like going out and partying and I'm like I'd rather just have some nice food and watch like watch like a decent film and I, yeah I guess it probably does does stem from this and it's like as I said going to the movies is like my solace a lot of the time and it's oh, 100% agree with you it's my home away from home sometimes it's, <laughs> it's gonna sound horrible sometimes it's it's a sanctuary it's like I feel more comfortable in a theater in the dark watching on the screen other people's fan the fantasy of that then real life like i absolutely totally love it. like i could give away everything else in this world we can get rid of almost everything as long as i could still have movies i'll give up phones like literally like computers podcasts whatever but as long as i could still watch yeah. films i would be happy like that's the only thing about the end of the world that would bum me out it's like i need some kind of power to at least rewatch films if i can you know i'd, I'd find a way to yeah. make that happen well yeah I, I i love the idea of being in a cinema as well and kind of like i guess is that thing a lot of people wince at the idea of going alone but i, I love it because it's that thing like I just get to then I get to step outside of the movie theater, light up a cigarette, and kind of think about the film, and kind of like don't have to talk to anyone, have like my mind like clouded, or even in the movie theater, I don't have to worry about the other person's opinion whilst watching the film. Kind of having that like, ah, oh, I'm the person who suggested we go watch this movie. Are they enjoying? It? Not enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, it's right. like, kind of like, well, I'm here for me. Like, say so it doesn't really matter. Like, I'm just gonna. I'm just going to enjoy myself. Yeah, I think I think definitely like true romance plays a part in that. In like I don't know, I not that like I see a lot of myself in Clarence because I don't. I think I'm a lot more level-headed than he is. But like, but then again, like love can do crazy things to you as well. And I probably have been like kind of I mean very irrational. When, yeah, like, oh yeah, in, I agree. In the throes of a new relationship and stuff like that. So. I think what this film does in regards to that is it manages to encapsulate and heighten what that burst of love like whereas other films like kind of in a more like romantic comedy it will be Joseph Gordon. It's usually an unattainable guy or an unattainable woman. Yeah. 
who uh, someone's pining for them, and then by the end of the movie, they both realize this unattainable person. Like, well, the person I've always been looking for has always been right in front of my face. It's that kind of oh, like oh, oh. same old, same old kind of like you know, like like you don't have, like you don't have to take a stretch. Like usually when you see the trailer, you go, okay, they're gonna meet. There's gonna be something in the middle that's gonna make them not be together. But it seems so obvious that they should have a conversation to make this happen. But then no, and then one's gonna take a job somewhere else, and luckily they're gonna know exactly when they're leaving, and it's gonna be that run up. Don't leave. I've loved you this whole time. You know, kind of thing, and yeah. it's very like you know, storybook ending kind of thing, but it's very spoon fed, and you don't feel real to it. On the point I was trying to make, though, the way this kind of film sets up and kind of like shows that uh, devotion to love and kind of like devotion to the other person takes it to that kind of extreme by like bursts of violence. Whereas in other films, it could be like Five Hundred Days of Summer, for instance. Once <laughs> once he s- sleeps with Summer, you kind of get that dance sequence and or it'll be like a montage it will be like do you know what I mean hall and oats and <laughs> yeah. kind of bouncy bouncy music and, yeah. and like that that's how they get across whereas this is like oh no we're going to show you through like what this person will do for that person like in regards to like, how much well, it's all from the meeting, you know. We find out later she's a paid hooker by his boss. She drops her popcorn on him. They watch the, the three kung fu films. They go get some pie. They talk. He has that speech again. He tells her the whole Elvis speech. They go to where he works. They look at, you know, comic books. And then we get back to her place, and there's a sex scene. And then at the end, you know, he goes out in the roof. She's out there on, like, this little veranda kind of thing. Like, it's a very... Like, I don't know where he lives that he's able to work at a comic store back in Detroit and still have a pretty cool apartment that has, like, a walkout, like, mm. almost deck without a deck. But anyway, so, and that's when she tells him that she is a prostitute. And he, he, part of him is like, you know what, I knew you were too good. Like, I knew you couldn't be all the way this cool. Like, there's just, like, this is feels too good to be true. And we find out the only thing she doesn't like is the Elvis. I forget what it was. Is either the Elvis or comic books or one of those things. I forget what she says she doesn't like. But from that moment on, like, we realize that the two of them, it's not just him who's falling for her. She's falling for him, too. She's found someone that's just different, that just mm. speaks to her in a way, same as he does. And then they go get married. And then they get those tattoos. And it's those tattoos that that's where you're talking about the violence. Like, all of a sudden, like, she tells him who her pimp is. Mm-hmm. And it's at that moment, he was cool, like, up until she's now his. And this leads to sometimes men can be possessive. And I don't always know that it's always meant in a way that sometimes it's either portrayed or sometimes men turn out to be, which is, you know, possessive. Like, like who are you talking to? Like, you know, like, you, like, they are not, like, a woman's not allowed to breathe, think, or anything for herself. But I think it's more of that protection possessive. Like, he thinks pimp. He thinks, okay, what do I know about pimps? What have I heard about pimps? Yeah. And he's like, no fucking way. You know, they're not, like, she may have been a call girl yesterday, but today with these sweet Elvis horseshoe marriage rings, we are now man and wife. We're getting match tattoos. I don't think I can live with this motherfucker breathing the same air as me. And it's that weird, like, overprotection, you know, like when mothers get it for their kids. I think men get it for their their family too, but they're women, like you know who you know that always. Who are you looking at? That kind of you know over ridiculous protection we do, but I think it's at that moment when they're getting those tattoos, and then we get our great cameo from Val Kilmer later on. That he's like he is haunted. He she's happy. She feels like. She's not in a care in the world. I don't think she's even realized that he's going to eventually come looking for her. Like, Drexel is eventually coming to find her. Like, it's not, you know, he's not just going to let her walk away. I don't even know if she knows that or not. But in his mind, he's like, I love this woman so much that this dude is definitely 
in the way. And I don't think he has a murderous bone in him. But at that moment, he's like, I will protect her however I must. And if that means preemptively protecting her, probably he was thinking, I know what's coming. Like, eventually he's going to become looking for his call girl. Like, yeah. She's not going to let a moneymaker walk away. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like a, it's like, like a good a, a moneymaking horse just fucking trot off into the sunset. He is going to come find her. Yeah. And that's not going to end in anything but violence, he'll probably kill Clarence and hurt her badly, kind of thing, you know? So Clarence is like, fuck it, we might have to preempt well, this. Well, and I think, like, when you look at the, that first Elvis sequence, because it is it is the, the vision of Elvis that basically tells him to do it. He's like, well, if I was you, man, I, he'd already be dead. Like, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like the, the killing's the easy part. Oh, no, no, the, the get... Getting away was the easy like, part. Yeah, yeah. yeah. hard. <laughs> killing's the hard part. And, like, what's kind of sobering about this film is the fact that that is all in... That is Clarence. That is like that is a personification yes. of Clarence's mind working out this problem for himself, and shows you that there is a definite like darkness in him wherever that kind of oh absolutely there's a break in reality for sure yeah and we get some glit like, and it's this thing and I think that that's where it plays into this idea of like maybe like Tarantino was savvy to like the kind of I don't know the negative not the negative influence of films but kind of if you let yourself just become too obsessed with anything like if it is like pop culture and stuff like that and kind of do have a break in reality that this is kind of the type of moves you can make because as we see like, yeah. his idea of a perfect birthday is watching free violent kung fu movies like, <laughs> you know i mean he's kind of his day job is just reading like imagine a lot of like yeah a lot of fun comics but i, I imagine he's probably yeah gonna... oh no he lives he's been living in a fantasy world this whole entire life yeah much like tarantino absolutely lives in a fantasy world but can we at least say i know we talked earlier we talked about nick cage possibly playing this role but Val Kilmer is spectacular as the mentor. Yeah. We don't even see his face. You hardly see his face. It's usually in a little out of focus or even in a side shot, but we don't see his face much. And he is fantastic as Elvis. He doesn't do too much with it. Do you know what I mean? Like he doesn't overdo the Elvis, the voice, nothing. He just is so good. And he's wearing that gold lame jacket. Oh, he's so fucking good as him. Like, Val Kilmer's little minor role as the mentor is just brilliant. I would have liked to have seen how Nick would have done it, but I don't know that Nick would have done it for just a, a small bit part. You know, I don't know that he would have wanted to just be on camera for three seconds in, in relativity. I mean, he gets two moments in it, and they're two very poignant moments, which I think were great. If you think about if you think about Val Kilmer at that time, Val Kilmer's high was probably a lot higher than Nicolas Cage's would have been at Yes. Yeah. I reckon I reckon Cage would have done it just for his sheer love of Elvis. You, you might be right. You might be I right. know that um originally Val Kilmer wanted to play Clarence, but a Tony Scott kind of like said, I've I've got this role for you. And when you think about like because throughout this film you imagine there probably are certain actors who were there for maybe uh two days, three, four days, like do you know what I mean? Depending on how efficient Tony Scott is. I imagine yeah, exactly. I imagine pretty efficient. I imagine some of them were there just for a day. And I think Val Kilmer was only only on set for two days to to film his his sequences but it doesn't feel like when you hear about like oh, they're only on set for two days you always think uh oh, phoned it in and it's like no he came in and he oh, delivered yeah. 
Yeah. Do you know what I mean? He kind of yeah. he kind of gave a seventy-seven revival Elvis. I mean, yeah. He kind of came out swinging in the cat suit. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of yeah. big, big bombastic. Not seventy-seven. It was uh, it was earlier than that because seventy-seven is when he died. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When, whenever that kind of big comeback was of Elvis, that that's exactly what Val Kilmer kind of gives in this performance. So the man that he tells me he should go kill is her pimp Drexel Spivey, and what an introduction we get to Drexel Spivey, and a very sweet cameo from Mr. Samuel Jackson <laughs> about how black people don't eat pussy, or how he's actually com- having conversation with his buddy, how he says, anybody tells you they don't, they're lying. It's such a great little moment, and then all of a sudden Drexel blows them away. You know, you look back now on Samuel Jackson's career, and as we record this, it's the day after his birthday. It's so cool because that's like our introduction to him in, into the Tarantino world, and how who knew that he would like just overtake the yeah, Tarantino-verse? The- and it's just such a small little, talking about eating pussy, man, you, you know, you do enough shrooms, you whole thing it's, just, it's such a funny moment that Dawson just becomes like crazy violent out of the blue which uh, is a trope of Tarantino which you know even though it's a Tony Scott movie this is the most Tarantino-esque movie that I've seen someone else direct do you know like if you look at other Tony Scott's movies great movies he's done great things but this movie feels out of place and in my opinion is his best work he's ever done mm-hmm. based on the script and the performances he gets but you just kind of look at it and you go oh shit you know, like it's so fucking tight from start to finish. Yeah, well, like everything that he gets out of it. If you look at the cast as well, like they're a kind of like it's a Tarantino-like cast. We get guys who are big names coming in to do one scene. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, you kind of got, it's crazy. Got, you, Christopher Walken has done two scenes in the Tarantino movie, two amazing scenes. Mm-hmm. And he's only but like what he's on he's on set one day for each of them. Actually, I think there's some other scenes that he does that get cut out of it. But in essence, he's on screen for one scene in each of those movies, and they're show stealers. It's unbelievable. But then you kind of look at yeah, you look at other people like uh, Chris Penn, and it's like Tarantino had him in in Reservoir Dogs just the year before, and it feels yep. like yep. like from top to bottom. Even if you look at like Brad Pitt, who obviously eventually like unbelievable. Cliff Booth or unbelievable. Aldo Rain, yep. in, Cliff Booth, Aldo Rain, yeah, so. Yep. so like you've kind of got these like if, if if you kind of just showed the cast list and like went oh uh and told someone the plot who directed this movie you go oh, that's a tarantino movie do you know what I mean? And it, I know. It's, it's the most Tarantino, not Tarantino movie ever yeah, made. It's yeah, just, yeah, It's insane. I think there's only a, a few, a, a few people in there, and there, there are moments in it, and I think it is that perfect blend of because uh, Tony Scott, I think, is an amazing director for because he's not really a, a, oh, a, great. a, I love a writer director, is he? So, like, no, no, he doesn't write. He just you know gets whatever is given to him. But yeah. the, the one thing he did that probably did justice. Is he did told the story in linear instead of nonlinear, which is how it was written. Well, yeah, this, this. But going from A to B works. Like, there's just so much about this movie that, like, if I were to just take Tony Scott's name off and put Tarantino's name in, you'd be like, yeah, no, that that's that seems right. Like, you know, and this is obviously before Tarantino's become who he is. Mm-hmm. He's only directed Reservoir Dogs. Uh, obviously, Tony Scott's in the middle of directing. You know, what I mean, like, there's there's things going on where the two aren't in the exact same orbit at the same time. And for Tony Scott and then Tarantino, like, for that to mirror, it's almost like the two of them were synergized to make this movie. Because it feels so much like a Tarantino film. Well, you can see a lineage of how Tony Scott got to this point as well. Obviously, uh, Beverly Hill Cops 2, what, in like the kind of mid-80s. And then, what was it, three years before this, or like two years before this, did... Um 
the last boy scout which kind of like do you know what I mean it's and it's working with another one of those kind of like really like great voices who's like carved out a niche for themselves in Shane Black and it kind of felt yeah. like oh think about like two of your projects kind of in a row you get you get Shane Black who is arguably like one of arguably one of like the the best action comedy writers we, we've ever seen yeah, yeah. Who just has a penchant for setting his films at Christmas, and then and then like the next script you get is Tarantino. It's like you can see that 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 trajectory. I do think there are a lot of as much as it feels like a Tarantino film. There are there is still enough of yes, there's Tony, enough Tony Scott yeah, yeah, moments yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. Absolutely, visually it looks like a Tony Scott movie. Yeah, yeah. It visually has a nice, but but he doesn't go over the top with his <laughs> visuals either, though. Like because in a lot of his films he can go you know a little heavy on, on on certain coloring and you know certain certain aspects that he likes to do. But for this one, uh, he he just nails it. And he gets a great performance, and it's his favorite performance from Mr. Gary Oldman as Drexel Spivey, this wannabe black thug of a white guy who's also British, which is so mind-boggling in and of itself. It's a British man playing a white guy from Detroit who thinks he is inner-city black man in the drug trade. It's so over over the top, but done so beautifully by him. (laughs) So He must have thought it was white boy day. So good. I grew up in that time frame, and I knew a lot of guys, a lot of white kids who who just took on a personification that just wasn't them. They basically stole from the African-American heritage and just made it their own. Yeah, We've been doing that in America forever, since, since the dawn of time. But he embodies this role, and he's so fucking good. And that little moment when Clarence and him get together and they meet up, and the back and forth and just, ah. Oh, it's almost a Mexican standoff of words before it gets violent. You know what I mean? It's like it's it's like a great tennis match. Like Drexel's like boom, 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 fires it off, and then all of a sudden you're thinking, oh shit, Clarence, you're in trouble. And now Clarence is like, I am Charles Bronson. You just you know he's like just comes right back at him. Motherfucker, yeah. Charles Bronson. It's the, it's that read that uh, Drexel has on him, like from the beginning. He's like, if you had come here and here and sat down and ate, ate, ate an egg roll, I would have thought you were a bad motherfucker. He's like, the, <laughs> fact, the fact that you've come in here and refused, and he's like, there's titties on the screen, you haven't even looked, <laughs> sh- sh- shows me that like you're scared. And like that is like, as an audience member, because obviously your conduit into this situation is Clarence. You're like, you're fucked. Do you know what I mean? Like, yep. it's like, like you, you've walked into the lion's den here. And it is that kind of... I've used this, like, uh, reference point again recently while I was talking about Red Rock West, but it's almost that kind of uh, Breaking Bad thing of, like, someone being put in a situation and you're there just going, how the fuck are they going to get out of this? Like, It's like when Mr. White meets Tuco for the first time yeah, and like, then throws like, that shit down and blows the fucking windows out and shows him he's not to be fucked with. Because then he hands him that fucking note and he goes into, that's the Mac, I've already seen it. He tells you who's in the movie, I've already seen it. You know, here's money for Alabama when we went to Greener Pastures and this is what I think of you and not one cent more. And he opens it up, he's like, you see what we got here? Well, who's Charlie Bronson? Yeah, the fact that there's nothing in it. And I, but I think like, again, this that, that kind of, <laughs> that plays into the idea of like, he is obviously pre-planned. He has got an envelope. He has licked it. He has closed it with nothing mm-hmm. in. This is him living out his movie fantasy. Well, he knows he's going to provoke him. Yeah. Like, he's <laughs> gone there to kill him. At the end of the day, he's going to kill him. He just wants to get his stuff. But at the, at the end of the day, his whole reason to go there was to kill him. And then shit goes sideways for a bit. And <laughs> uh, he gets an ass whooping. Mm-hmm. 
because he thought it was white boy day and it ain't white boy day. And then Marty can't find his keys or something. And that's the poor Marty. Poor fucking Marty. That dumb son of a bitch. Marty knew where his keys were. He would have been all set. And then it's all the distraction he needs. Next thing you know is Drexel is taking a 357 Magnum round to the dick. Yep. <laughs> and uh, Marty goes down and Drexel's killed. And then he asks a fellow prostitute to grab Alabama's ship. And he gets the fuck out of there, and he shows back up, beaten up, eating burgers, just fucking hurting. And then that's one of the great scenes. And he's still on a fucking anger high. Mm -hmm. And there's a moment when he's kind of yelling at her where in his mind he's like, did I just kill somebody that you actually cared about? Like, like he suddenly realizes, maybe I jumped into this a little too fast. Because you can see it in his anger. (laughs) Because he's like, you fucking love him? Like, he's like losing his shit on her. And she's like, no, I think what you did, what? I just she goes was so romantic. Like, every guy in the world wants to hear that. Like, you want to hear her say that? Like, you do. Like, you don't want to hear her say, well, yes, because now you're fucked. You know what I mean? Like, you just killed her pimp. And she's like, well, I kind of had a thing for him. Now you got to kill her because that's just the way it's got to go because now she knows about you killing this guy. But when she says, it's so romantic, it's just... Obviously, it's it's a script, and obviously it has to go that way, because that's where it then pushes. Now we know that she's in, because when he comes back and says he's just killed him, that's like you're putting all your cards on the table. Like, right then and there, that is like an early moment to have with someone you just got married to to find out how much they've got your back. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, like, I've been married for, Jesus, coming up on 24 years now. So if I were to kill somebody in defense or something like that, my wife might be upset depending on why, but she would have my back. I don't think she would dime me out. She may even help me hide the body. <laughs> <laughs> or she definitely went down, you know. But if it happened like 24 hours into our, our relationship, I don't think that would have been the same case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So he put a lot of his chips on the table for her to have to make a decision right then and there. You know, are you in on this? Like, how much are we in love? How much do you still want to be my my wife now that I've just told you I've just went and killed your pimp? Well, yeah. And she is like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's cool. Like, yes, it's a fantasy for men. You know, like you've just saved the damsel in distress. If you reverse it, like women want the man to, you know, the knight to ride on the horse. Well, the knight's got a fucking sword. And I'm going to tell you what. He didn't just ride up to the gates without cutting off a lot of people's heads and slaying a dragon on the way in. Blood has been shed yeah, yeah, to, well, to get to you. You may not want to know what the blood that was shed, but let me tell you, lady, to get to the dra- past the dragon, I had to shed some blood to get here to kiss you and wake you up. So even though it's not in the Disney version of the stories, blood has been shed for me to get here. And he's a self, self-imposed white knight as well. She, 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 well, it's not like she was held captive. She never asked for it. Yeah, she didn't say, hey, can you go kill this yeah, guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's self-imposed. It's for his own kind of insecurity and ego that he he feels like this is the thing that needs to be done. And <laughs> I've got, kind of got to say this here because it feels like this kind of opening of the film feels like, and I, 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 it, it, it's, it's well within his rights to rip himself off. And I'm, I'm not sure how you feel about this or if I'm going out on a whim. But this kind of section reminds me somewhat of the Gold Watch sequence from uh from pulp fiction in regards to like uh agreed bruce willis kind of like he goes on this mission to kind of like get what he's owed kind of thing get his watch back and like kind of i feel the same was uh mr orange and mr white that whole why mr white pulls in mr orange it's like you take the responsibilities of another person on like there's a lot of whatever turned into becoming the gold watch that he finalized in those two movies for sure you can see where they were playing with like your person's put in a situation what do you do for that person like you take on their responsibilities and like in this one, he definitely just decided to say, she's my wife. She said she had a pimp. 
I have to go kill him. And he's never once said, like, he even asked, you know, was he rough with you? No, he never was rough with me. He was always kind to me. He was just rough to some other girl. You know, so even when he shows up, and yeah, we don't necessarily like Drexel because when we first meet him, but in the same respect, you know, he's, at, as we know, if he hasn't done anything to this girl or we haven't seen him do anything outside of the world he lives in. Like, when he kills those guys, he's just doing a business deal that obviously he was probably told to do from Mr. Blue Lou Boy, who will never meet, but... You know, yeah. so he's at least doing what Drexel's supposed to do. He's living in the lane that he has decided to put himself in. And it's really Clarence who is crossing lanes and getting into things that he shouldn't be and yeah. doesn't know what he's doing. I, I, I think this is an interesting point to kind of like pull it back to Tarantino's script in the fact that I've kind of bullet pointed out like how how kind of act one for him would have went, which would have been it would have been the fuck Elvis speech into opening credits. And then that Drexel pussy eating scene. And then the next scene would have been Alabama and uh, Clarence turning up to Clifford's place, which I guess is kind of the next scene in the movie, right? Yeah. So after, I mean, after they decide to kill, after he kills her and she's all cool with it, they go to see his dad, who is played by the great Dennis Hopper, mm -hmm. who was a former policeman who is now like a night watchman at some probably old, probably car. Uh, manufactured place is probably no longer there in Detroit. It's funny. You look at Detroit 30 years ago, and it really hasn't changed. Like, it's just gotten worse. Like, you know what I mean? Like, Detroit in the 90s didn't exactly look all that great, and it's worse now yeah, I, when you look at I, it. I know that some of it is filmed. So that um, that movie film. Uh, yeah, half the movie's in Detroit. The other half we film in California. Well, there's a little section they start on the road, which is probably just outside of California on the way to Vegas. Yeah. I mean, they shoot a little bit of desert scene with the phone booth, which most people probably listen to have no idea what the fuck a phone booth is. That that movie theater from the opening is like on Sunset Boulevard. So like, do you know what I mean? Like, imagine there probably is an element of like downtown LA filling in for Detroit as well in certain places and stuff like that. A bit of movie magic. But yeah, I think... Dennis Hopper, so it kind of feels like a, a great, great place to talk about Dennis Hopper. In regards to, we're given through the chats that he has with Clarence that there's a darkness in his past. And I think in, in regards to casting, that is perfect because... Oh, God, yes. Obviously... Dennis Hopper, yeah. <laughs> if you look at... Like, you need someone to play a drug, someone on drugs or was on drugs or an alcoholic, Dennis Hopper is your man in the well, day. It's, it's, for sure. It's clever meta casting, right? Because obviously, for all intents and purposes, he's a really nice guy in this movie. Yeah, like, yeah. So, but hearing them stories that he used to be a drunk and he used to be abusive, having seen... Or having like public knowledge of just Dennis Hopper in general and his kind of problems of drugs and yeah, we totally buy it as if it was like Tom Hanks instead. You'd have been like, ah, oh, Tom Hanks, I don't know, but we totally buy it. Like Dennis Hopper doesn't have to put any extra acting into it <laughs> or any extra backstory. All we have to hear is, you know, when he says, you know, when you when you were an alcoholic and you know my my people gave me shit, I didn't give any shit, and you're just kind of like, no, that that's right, this is Dennis Hopper. So yeah. you know, it's almost like Dennis Hopper. They just changed his name for the role. Dennis Hopper was a down on his luck guy. Yeah, I, and I think it's a very clever like the the placement of where his like his house is this kind of house right next to the railroad railroad tracks which like i guess visually can kind of like tell us that because you don't really know that much about clarence's backstory and it's like which side of the don't. tracks was he born on do you know what i mean is, is he is, yeah. it's almost like he's on the scut the cusp and it, that, I think he's probably middle class at best because 
If his dad was a cop in Detroit, maybe scratched out 40, 45 by the time he was done. You know, I mean, this is you know, back. He was probably a cop through sixties and or seventies through the eighties. Clearly, there was alcohol. He had more than one sibling. We get that from just the conversation. No one knows where the mother is or what's happening. Like all we know is Clarence works at a comic book shop. Probably doesn't make a whole lot. Lives in some upstairs apartment in a building in downtown and goes to his movies on his birthday and loves Elvis. Like, that's what we know about Clarence. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. he has a friend named R- Dick Ritchie who's out in fucking California who's trying to do something with his life. Meanwhile, he's sitting here in Detroit uh, just making time pass, as, as a lot of people end up doing. Oh, yeah, and I think, because obviously we get that scene with his dad where he asks him to kind of, like, scope out whether he's being searched for by the police. And then that that cut to Dick Ritchie and his uh, audition, I think it's an amazingly, like, subtle yes. way of, like, introducing a character. Because you're kind of a bit like, who the fuck's this? What? Why is this relevant? And then, obviously, because he's at an audition, the woman comes out and says, hey, Dick Ritchie. And then we have the amazing Michael Rappaport, which I guess more people <laughs> probably, uh, know him more now for his kind of internet celebrity than kind of... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> him kind of calling Donald Trump... Trump out of... Yeah. So- Pack your shit. Uh, Yeah, pack your shit. um, And like, but then the next scene, like when we go back to Clarence and Alabama, he says, like just before they leave, he mentions the name Dick Ritchie, and then like instant gratification of, oh, that's the guy we've just seen. That's the 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 relevance just pays off. It's not like it's not out of place. Well, it it works because if you think about it, Tarantino is kind of writing to romance the beginning of this. The first half, he's from Nashville, Tennessee. He's from uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, originally, and then they move out to California. So it's like this is Tarantino's life. They may have moved to Detroit, and I think a lot of it is because he was a big fan of Elmer Leonard, and a lot of Elmer Leonard novels are all based in Detroit. Uh, You know, they at least start in Detroit, and then some will work their way to California. But for this... I think it jumps when we do Dick Ritchie, since this is autobiographical, I just think this is the split of who Tarantino ends up becoming because Tarantino originally thought he wanted to be an actor. He went out to Hollywood because he thought he wanted to be an actor. And then it was through acting class that he realized he really loved writing and directing. Mm -hmm. So originally he wanted to be an actor. So you can see the Dick Ritchie being Tarantino when he first gets to California, going out for these bit roles in these bit TV shows, you know, that Tarantino would have tried out for because he loved, you know, either the characters or whoever was in it and probably was trying out because as they say, you know, he was going out for TJ Hooker who had starred um, uh, Captain Kirk, you know, starring in it. And so he would have tried out for that show to meet him. Probably wouldn't have cared about his career. It would have been just to get a scene with Captain Kirk in it and then that would have been So it's a cool dichotomy of, you know, you're getting two versions of Tarantino in the film based in Clarence and then throwing in Dick Ritchie. They're kind of like Clarence is who Tarantino was back in Tennessee. And then he's turning into this new person of Dick Ritchie out in California in in a sense of who he wanted to be. And then there's that like he's almost even in the script planting the seeds. There's something he expands on in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with that idea of like uh, TV show actors and stuff like that. And I know like on the kind of press run for the book, he talks about how much he loves all of those guys and kind of like love TV and like I think like he wrote like scripts for episodes of Lancer like a made up 
Um, he wrote five. Uh, no, for uh, Bounty Law, he's wrote five scripts, and he thought about making them. Yeah, like, yeah. There was real talk about him making it for Netflix as like a a little as a little show. So, so, so we'll see if that ever comes to fruition. I guess some of his thing of like casting certain people was just to like get those stories. He wanted to hear those old Hollywood stories. So like, yeah, you can imagine him wanting to be in T.J. Hooker to sit to meet Bill Shatner. Like, Absolutely, I'm gonna be the guy behind. That's why Robert Forrester is in uh, Jackie Brown. That's why Pam Greer is in Jackie Brown. It's like like why a lot of like Bill Carradine is in Kill Bill, uh, Kurt Russell. You know, like all these guys are people he grew up watching and loving. So when given an opportunity to help them act, it's crazy. But you think about like some of their best roles are in his films. You know, it's like he loved who they were as characters, but gave them roles and dialogue to really personify who he saw them as. Even Travolta was his favorite actor of all time when he when he cast him in Pulp Fiction, and he. Gives Travolta his best role ever. Like, I know he's been in other great movies, but this is, he is the best he's ever been when he's in Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. But speaking of the best he's ever been, the Sicilian scene. Oh. Up until Tarantino wrote the opening scene for Inglorious Bastards, this was his favorite scene he ever wrote. And I have talked about it ad nauseum to hundreds of people and on our old podcast. And we're going to do it again in two weeks on our Bible study. But the Sicilian scene between Dennis Hopper and the great Christopher Walken, where Christopher Walken basically, once again, similar to what we, we've we had. Tarantino, it's a very big thing of his. He will have one character take over the screen, be menacing, and set you up. And then another character, when you think, oh shit, they are fucked, suddenly decides to do something that now puts that character we thought was in charge on the back foot or causing them to do something we didn't expect. When the scene starts and he goes into his whole like he's the you know a Sicilian and he's world class liars and he tells all this stuff and I love it. he's like what we got here is a game of show and tell you you show me everything but you tell me nothing like Christopher Walking is brilliant in the scene and then Dennis Hopper realizing that you know what no matter what I say. I'm dead. So I'm not going to betray my son. And since he knows that he can tell when I'm lying, let's see how he feels about this story that is of historical reference that may use words that we're not going to use here. But we're going to talk about how Sicilians who were overrun by Northern Africa way back when and had their skin and complexion changed due to crossbreeding, shall we say, and how he says that basically the Sicilian race now as it's known with the dark hair, dark eyes, and olive skin is because of African warlords basically just raping and having sex with all these women and changing the bloodline forever. And to watch it, just the brilliance in which he tells the story that is based on historical fact and making this guy sit there and eat it. It's just, oh, the, the tension, the back and forth, mm. the great um, insert shots of like the reactions from the guys sitting there watching and they're hearing it and just thinking like, I love James Gandolfini before he becomes Tony Soprano looking over at Christopher walking and kind of like oh shit like they all know that when this guy's saying this he's dead but there's a little bit of like there's a little bit of respect that he has the balls to tell this story and i think they're all kind of like there's no fucking way this is true yeah but when he goes now if i'm lying now if you can tell me am i lying and i just love the fact that 
Christopher Walken has to like mm, this fucking guy. He gets up, gets the gun. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, the it's just such an amazing scene. He says like I haven't shot a guy since 1984 as well. Which, <laughs> yeah, I haven't killed anyone since 1984. <laughs> he was like, how much has got his back up about it? And like, um, yeah, it's weird to see a scene where like Dennis Hopper seems like the sane one. Do you know what I mean? Like, in, in, in the kind yes. of knowledge we have of him, and it's like, this, like, well, not even the same one. He seems like the least menacing of the two. And it's like, yeah, it's kind of... Oh, he totally is. But he's like, you know what? If I'm going to go out... I'm going to go out swinging. I'm going to go out yeah. I'm going to go out standing up, even though I'm tied to a chair. I'm going out standing up. Yeah. I'm going out telling you a truth that you are not going to like, that I know is going to cut you deep to the core because of your your, your racist views, your, your beliefs, your ignorance. I'm going to cut you deep. And yes, I'm going to lose my life, but I am going out with the last laugh. You may kill me, but this is going to last with you till the day you die. Yeah. On your deathbed, you're going to think. Of, every time you see a black person cross the street or come near you, you are going to think about this. Everything I'm saying to you is going to stick with you for a very long time. And because you're going to look at me and know I'm not lying, your men are going to know this. Now you're all going to know this. You're all going to have to sit there with this. And yes, you've taken my life, but I have taken your pride. And there's nothing you could do about it. Well, you know, what I mean? it's just... It's such a oh, it's, it's a perfect go fuck you moment in life. Yeah, that and, and, and very few people ever get a chance. And it's the fact that that speech is not near on verbatim remembered from a speech that one of Quentin Tarantino's mums yes, heard. Like said to him when he was a kid, when he was talking about like one of his Sicilian friends and kind of who who was a black guy. I know that like a lot of his mum's um, like boyfriends and that when he was growing up and kind of his stepdad, who I think gets an appearance in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the book. Like he and he writes in there's like a scene where he writes his dad, yeah, his his kind of stepdad and his himself into the book. But like yeah, like uh, yeah, the fact that he kind of what. A fascinating mind that he heard this. Uh, you can you can imagine being like fairly young, even as a teenager. Like, do you know what I mean? For that to stick in your head, mm -hmm. and then like your mid twenties, you're like, right, I'm going to pull that out the bank from when I was twelve, and I'm going to put it into yeah. the script. Like, it's just you can imagine the fascinating life up to that point. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's, it's crazy because this came out uh, my senior year of high school. And so I was taking Latin in high school because I didn't want to speak Spanish or do French. So, but my Latin teacher, we you know we talk about uh, Rome and we talked about uh, Northern Africa and that Hannibal crossed the mountains with the uh, elephant stuff and invaded Italy and invaded Sicily. So he kind of, without saying it in our class, because he didn't want to you know cause a stir and get in trouble. But basically, it was kind of like alluding to the fact that, you know, there is a reason that Sicilians don't look like the rest of Italy. You know, like, like without saying, it's like there, there was there was a war between Sicily and Northern Africa. There was a lot of stuff that happened. And, we, you know, without him coming out and saying, like, well, you know, this is this is why, you know, it's, it's kind of like why Mexicans and uh, Latin American people have a bit of a, a Spanish heritage is because obviously the conquistadors came down yeah. and they raped and pillaged the Indians down in there. So, you know, like, people look the way they do because of these things. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. But, you know, sometimes people can't handle it. They just can't handle the, the truth. And this is what made this such a brilliant, brilliant moment. Yeah. It's, and it should have should have signaled to anybody that you're dealing with. And I think this is why it's one of Tony Scott's best is this isn't like a normal one of his scripts where it's like, you know, like Top Gun. Or the, it's like an action-heavy story. And it's, you know, it's more on set pieces and not so much on story elements. Mm -hmm. This landed on 
on beats. This had dialogue that you weren't used to. This had dialogue that you'd never. You don't have. There's not another Tony Scott film that has dialogue in it like there is in this film. Yeah. Not a single one out and, there. And the fact as well that the way that this scene ends with like them going, we need to go rummage through Clarence's apartment, and then finding the address on the fridge is so satisfying because it's like this film just like moves at a clip. It's not like we're going to... Do you know what I mean? In other films, you could imagine there being another scene, them rummaging through Clarence's apartment, and it's just kind of being overly long, whereas this is like, no, even though it's two hours, it's like, we're just going to move it on. It's like... It's smart writing, because because he gave him the address in this couple scenes before, he puts it on it, we forget about it completely, because we're enamored with Christopher Walken coming on screen, we're enamored with how vicious he is as a gangster, we're enamored with everything that's going on, this... A tet, a tet moment is captivating, and then it ends the way we're pretty sure it was going to end, but we had no idea the uppercut that fucking Dennis Hopper's character would throw. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, boss, get ready to be happy. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? You're just kind of like, it's like, it's like we didn't stop. Like, the, the, the show didn't come to a grinding halt. We were able to then go, because then it jumps right to them being in California, him calling. I think he fucks her in the fucking phone booth. But it keeps it moving with pace, so we don't just suddenly go, oh, like yeah. the wheels kind of come off on us. Yeah, and, like, when, like, when they... Yeah, when they arrive in LA, like, and I think like it's really interesting. I listened to a, a, a clip from Quentin Tarantino on the commentary for this film, and he said like his original reasoning for the kind of structure of the script originally was he wanted act one for like the characters to be talking about stuff and us as the audience are kind of like we're behind on everything because we haven't seen we haven't seen what actually happened with. Uh, Clarence and Alabama we didn't we didn't see what happened with Clarence and Drexel and then obviously we see like we see the the Sicilian scene and stuff like that and we're kind of like huh like what's go like what, what what's going on here and it's kind of we are very much put in Dennis Hopper's shoes because obviously the way that Christopher Walken says it is like him and his girl came in and they massacred everyone Whereas, like, in this version, we've already seen that, and we're like, oh, no, we know that's not the case. I'm not sure if it could be done, because I guess there would be, like, things of dialogue, but, like, that would have to be added in or, or stuff like that. But it would be interesting to kind of... you could I can almost piece it together in my head what this, would, this film would have looked like in Tarantino's originally intended, like, structural order. It would have been neat, but I... I got to give Tony credit that doing the straight story works because the yeah. whether Tarantino realized it or not, when you put the the script in proper order, it has the beats and flow to move from A to B somewhat seamlessly and somewhat effortlessly without us feeling like we're being gypped or cheated out of things. Yeah, you know we I'm, get this. You know, once they do it to California, we get the. I mean, even the music, everything changes. Like the way things look, it looks like California. You know, like you get that good feel of like this is what Detroit should feel like, and it's very gritty and ugly. And then when we get to California, it is more glamorized. It is more bright and sunny, and the music picks up, and we get great moments, and we get great cameos from Brad Pitt when we finally meet with Michael Rappaport, and we finally you know get to to the house, and we start moving forward, and we realize we're gonna try to sell this cocaine, and he sets up the whole meeting with Elliot, and they. On the fucking roller coaster, and that felt like a Tony Scott move. 
Like, I, I, I couldn't It see. was. It was supposed to be in a zoo. The original scripts has them talking in a zoo, and Tony Scott was like, it felt like it killed the vibe of where the, the, the pace of the movie, and they're trying to, you know, we were trying to ratchet it up, and so they're like, let's put on a roller coaster. Yeah, and yeah that, 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 fantastic. That, that is, that, and it makes sense as well, because they're trying to be incognito, and one thing I love about this is when, and it, it, it feels like Tarrant, you know, sometimes you can hear, like, ca- characters almost speak in Tarantino's voice almost like when when um Clarence has that conversation with Lee on the phone and they're speaking in code about Dr. Shivago and like they're just mo- using all these mo- like movie making analogies like in regards to like I usually produce like a couple of uh, small films that I know are going to sell really well like <laughs> yep. and I work with like uh, trusted distributors and stuff like that. It's it's just such great writing, and it's like it's it's thrilling to watch. It's like we've just watched them go on a roller coaster, but there's something more kind of exciting about this exchange because you've got Elliot's there, yeah, and we got, and he's oh, trying to do it between. And then he's like, "You want me to suck his dick?" Yeah, yeah. No, oh, who the fuck is dick? <laughs> yeah, and I guess I guess. Uh, Bronson uh, Pinot would have been a kind of yeah. someone that Tony Scott would have met on Beverly Hill Cops 2, right? He would have been a uh, Serge in that. So like, it kind of feels like he's brought in a couple of his guys as well. And it's like, he's he's amazing in that role, right? As that kind of feckless idiot who's a laptop <laughs> for this producer and kind of the go-between between this drug deal. And then they get the, the drug deal. But in the meantime, because... They found where they were. We send Virgil gets sent ahead. Virgil is sent ahead to find the drugs and take care of Alabama and Clarence. And it's played by the great James Gandolfini. Before James Gandolfini was James Gandolfini of Sopranos fame. And he plays it perfectly. And it is one of the most brutal scenes in film. It's a brutal scene of him Opening up with beating the living shit out of Patricia Arquette's character. Mm -hmm. Beating Alabama, I mean, viciously. It is hard to watch and stomach. What helps me get through it, what is like the Alka-Seltzer or the aspirin that helps get through this, is knowing, having seen the film, where it goes and that Alabama gets her comeuppance and that she is the phoenix from which all great heroine characters of Tarantino's rise from. Mm -hmm. When she rises up and puts the corkscrew in his shoe, and then they get into the fight, and even though it keeps getting worse, and she throws what the conditioner or body lotion in his face when he's cut, and then hits him with, I mean, just goes through him, sets him on fire, and then shoots him, and then, I mean, just pulverizes him. There's a moment inside of me that is totally like stand-up girl power, almost like Spice Girls. Like I'm so happy and thrilled of how she's able to overcome him yeah. and beat him. And they're just the unstoppable resilience that this woman has in her life that at the time I can't remember another female character outside of Ripley from Aliens that had the same Kind of, you know, like, this is not a man's world. I can survive on my own. I don't need you around to to protect myself. Mm -hmm. But also to do it in such a way of, like, good Lord, does she take a fucking beating in that scene. Good Lord. I mean, it is brutal. Brutal, brutal, brutal. Yeah, I just... But then, you know, at the end, when she, when he finally comes in, and she is just almost, (laughs) almost Kubrick uh, with the monkeys beating the other ones down with the, when they finally realize that you can use bones of an animal as as a weapon, and she's just beating him to death with that, and just screaming almost primarily, 
it's just like you're like holy fuck like the movie takes out you're like oh shit it's like we talked about earlier like he goes and kills Drexel for her and we see his animalistic side but we see what she, what she's capable of and you realize wow I think I think Gandalfini is amazing in this role because like well for one it's Tom Sizemore Brilliant. who got him the role for the film which is like Hey, Tom Sizemore's not the greatest guy in the world, but that's, that's a pretty good thing he did for uh, for Gandalf. And ironically, he's in both True Romance and Archie Born Killers. So it was supposed to be one movie. He bridges both. Yeah. He's in both of those films. And and, and he's really great. Like, he's kind of, he, he made a real good name for himself in the 90s of playing these real fucking evil pieces of shit. Because he does it again in 8mm as well, the Nick Cage film. He kind of plays that real fucking evil guy in that and does it so well. But what I think is really interesting about this scene is that it is, his kind of male ego and uh inbuilt misogyny that is his downfall this fact that like agreed when he says to her like like this thing of thinking that she's just frail and she's like this this helpless woman he goes oh, come on baby you want it you want, you want, i'll give you one free shot come on. stick it in daddy yeah, it's like stick, stick it in daddy yeah and it's like it's it's the fact that you underestimate this woman that definitely, like, it, that's what gives her the upper hand. Do you know what I mean? It's like the kind of, he just thinks that it's like, she then gets the upper hand again when she's, she laughs at him and really, like, just kind of fractures yes. his ego and says, like, look at, like, you, you, know you look you ridiculous. Look, yeah. Yeah. And then he has yep. to look at himself. And then that gives, and that, I think, like, whether Tarantino knew it or not, that is like that. That really undercuts, I think, any kind of. I don't know. Not that there's any sticky like uh, misogynist stuff in there, but any of that kind. Well, of... I think he sets us up as the audience because we're sitting there watching, knowing that Clarence is out, and we keep cutting from him. Him talking about that stupid fucking Elvis thing while he's getting food because he doesn't know. But as the audience, we're like, "Who gives a fuck about Elvis? Yeah. Get the burgers to get fucking back!" And we keep thinking, at any moment he's gonna come through the door and he's gonna save her. And even in our mind, she may be thinking that because that's why she's you know she's kind of like delaying him and she's taking the beating because she figures that. Any moment, Clarence is going to come back and surprise him and save me. And then there's a moment where she realizes, I have to do this on my own. Like, I can't rely on anybody. I've done this before. I'm strong. I don't need another man. Well, I don't know where the fuck happened to Clarence, but I'm taking this into my own hands. And then you can see her pivot at that moment. When she sees oh, the yeah. corkscrew, she's like, that's my opening. And she goes right. And as an audience member, we've been sitting here the whole time going, fuck Clarence, who gives a shit about this fucking magazine? Get back there and save her. Because we have been predetermined and predisposed to be like, well, he's got to save her. How can she do anything for herself at the time? You know, because it's still early 90s. You know, we haven't had the strong, we hadn't really had the strong female characters been put forward to us. Man, when she rises up from the fucking ashes of the ass whooping and finishes him off brutally, from that moment on, I was like, okay. Yeah, like, it was like, in my mind, like, there is no such thing as a white knight. The women are more than capable. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to say this. And that's why when we get the bride in Kill Bill, we don't get the bride without Alabama Whirly blazing a trail, mm. <laughs> you yeah. know, of taking an ass whooping and then taking out James Gandolfini. And I'm a massive fan of a firewalk and any film that's sets especially like because that is the ultimate like the amount of times i've kind of like been sat in the bathroom or something like that and gone oh if, a, if like a burglar came in what could i do you know what I mean you kind of like have those daydreams like what would i use in this room to defend myself like, <laughs> yeah, I've, always, right. I've always got a lighter on me there's some air freshener there i'll fucking like set them ablaze <laughs> like <laughs> And I love the music they pick. Like, it's almost a horror type, you know, almost like a slasher type, you know, like, yeah. 
because when that when she lets him emblaze, that music changes dramatically. It's the most dramatic piece, uh, even just a se- small section in the film. When she lets him ablaze and he comes flailing out, and then she hits him, blasts him with the shotgun, and then you know pulverizes him. So well, yeah, I, I, I think because uh, most of the most of the score is mainly that kind of interpolation of that classical piece that uh, Hans Zimmer does. Yeah, it's, it's of... almost like, uh, yeah, it has a very um, Caribbean island vibe to it. Well, yeah, I know that, like, uh, there's a lot of contention surrounding that because... Yeah, that and... Um, Badlands. Uh, Badlands, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's like... Uh, but, but even <laughs> then, they both borrow it from... Uh, it's a classical piece called Orth Schoolwork by Gassenhauer. So, like, it's it, it is this kind of like marimba kind of. Piece. Yeah, it's it's it works so well. We're gonna get to that in a yeah. minute. After all this mayhem, we the mayhem doesn't stop. We do get a great moment of another great cameo from Brad Pitt playing Floyd, the pothead roommate. I have had a pothead roommate, and goddamn, if it wasn't a lot like Floyd, Floyd is great. Brad Pitt is genius in it. He goes, want to smoke a ball? And they rack this shotgun. And he tries to tell him directions. So great. He, him and the moment from Val are just such great little interludes. Just quick little moments that just are, they're not wasted cameos. Like, they're just brilliant. They're just brilliant moments. But we get to the hotel showdown, which is the beginning. Again, technically this movie comes second, but in writing standpoint, this movie came first. So it came ahead of the two showdowns that we had, the two Mexican standoffs that we would get in Reservoir Dogs. Mr. White and Mr. Pink being the first, and then our three, technically four, with our three-way between Joe, Nice Guy, and Mr. White, uh-huh. with Mr. Orange laying there dying on the on the ground. But we get the biggest. This is his biggest. And some people will say, well, what about the pub scene in Inglourious Bastards? Technically, only the people at that table knew what was going on until the shit went off, and then everything kicks off in that. Those other people playing the card game have no idea what's happening, so they're not technically in it. But this one, when they go there and they're doing the deal, and Clarence goes to take a piss, and all of a sudden the cops come busting in, and Donowitz's guards are like, fuck you, they've got like semi-automatic machine guns, they're already like, holy shit, and then the mob comes kicking in, and... Like you said, Sizemore's like, who the fuck are these guys? Like, it just goes sideways so fast. And you're just sitting there. And in the middle are your stars. And they're just like, what the fuck? The only issue I had with this, although now 30 years down the road and the way that cop policing in America has been brought to light, maybe maybe Sizemore shooting Donowitz is not as far-fetched as it felt back then. Because this whole thing gets kicked off because of Mr. Measley. Uh, Elliot. Should I suck? You want me to suck his dick? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Elliot there basically saying he wants to get out of there because he's scared. And he's calling out the cops' names. And Donowitz suddenly gets hip to it. And he starts you know yelling at him. And then he dumps hot tea on him. <laughs> and Tom Sizemore decides... Nicky Dimes, I think his name. He was he Dimes or I'm not sure. I think he was Dimes. I can't remember if he was if he was Dimes or the other guy. Those because him and Sean Penn. Yeah, the, 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 yeah, him and Chris Penn come in quite late in this film, and they yeah, there, there is a lot of fucking scene stealing. There's a lot of James Wood in in this film. Brilliant. I always think like when I think of scene stealing, I think of James Woods in uh, Casino, and those two, oh. those two kind of come in, and it made me They're think just, like. Yeah. It's, jo- it's Jonah Hill just kind of watched loads of Chris Penn, and he kind of feels like the the spiritual successor 
<laughs> yeah. away. Chris Penn doesn't get doesn't get the credit he deserves. And I mean, he's in those two. Just him being in two Tarantino verse movies, him being in Reservoir Dogs, and then being in this movie, he's phenomenal. And Sizemore is just as amazing when he's in Natural Born Killers. Yeah. It's, it's he's fantastic. It's you know, and you you figure like, damn it, too bad Penn died so early, and Sizemore decided to snort cocaine and throw all his money away on hookers and throw his career away because he he's a phenomenal actor. I think the way that this like final scene like plays out, even from the moment they go in, and even that scene right before when they're in the elevator, and oh, Clarence goes fucking scene. crazy yes. on Elliot, the tension gets broken because it keeps cutting back to 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 the police. Yeah, there's a wild man. Yeah, yeah, I fucking love Clarence. I love this guy. And they're, like, and they're, like, they're kind of like going, he's gonna kill him. He's like, he's not gonna shoot him. And there's this like, and then I was like, oh, he's gonna shoot him. Yeah. And they're like throughout this whole scene as well, we have the the wire under the balls instead of the bomb under the table because yeah. And what's really clever, and I think what could have worked in Tarantino's original plotting of this film is the fact that Act One would have been the audience know nothing really, the characters are ahead of them. Act Two were brought up to speed. But then we overtake the characters in the film because, like, the final act of this, it's like the audience know everything. The audience know that there's the wire. The characters in the scene know nothing, and it's like, yeah, yeah, the power is in our hands. And I think that I think <laughs> that, that that's what's in. I think that's what's interesting about Tarantino's original script is the fact, like, it's almost like a kind of it works like an exercise in how to write a script and kind of working with the, them dynamics of what an audience knows and kind of messing about with, especially that um, Hitchcockian thing of the bomb under the table and how that like a yeah. really exciting thing for audiences to see. And it, you see it in this because you know that that wire is there and it is like, so either one of two things are going to happen. It's going to get exposed, which they kind of tease us with when he's kind of having the issues. Playing with his dick, yeah, yeah. playing with it. And then, or the other, the other thing is, when the fuck are they going to burst through the doors? Yeah. It's kind of like, as an audience, you're there going like, your, your heart's in your mouth because you're like, I don't know which way this is going to go, mm-hmm. but either way it's going to, it's gonna end badly because if he if 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 someone figures out the wire, they're all getting shot. If the cops come in, well, everyone's getting shot, and then it's kind of like, oh, well, let's add the fucking mob into the situation as well. Like, yeah, oh, fucking like. Oh well, no, there, Donowitz's fucking bodyguards like, yeah. fuck this. Yeah. I don't give a shit. It's crazy. Yeah, I forgot to tell you. I fucking hate the cops. Another genius thing about it is, like you're saying, we know the wire. We're worried about that, but then Elliot dimes himself out. Anyways, like, he, like, like we're like, oh, he made it through the wire part, okay. And also, it's like he dimes himself out. Anyways, he spoils it all. Anyways, gets himself doused in hot tea, and then the shootout fucking begins. Everybody fucking is. Everyone dies. Everybody except Michael Rappaport's character, Patricia Arquette, and then the controversial Clarence Worley does survive. <laughs> in the original script, Clarence Worley is killed. I've gone back and forth on it. I don't hate it that he survives. How do you feel about it? Like, like I, I, I don't know if, if he died. Like, I, I try to think outside of the Tarantino verse kind of being abruptly turned because of that. Because in the original, he dies. Alabama was Mr. White. And I kind of like those synergetic moments throughout his movies. Things intertwine, even though they're not always 100% in. But the, you know what I mean? Like, they, they pass along through the stream where... I'm fine with him living at the end. Like, I don't have a 
a qualm that he lived. Like, I wish there was something I could say, like, well, he deserved to die. You know, like, there's a part of me that is okay that he that he lived. And I don't feel it's too Hollywood. I mean, I guess it could be. Well, I, I, think, I think knowing that ending, like, knowing that that ending was intended, it's like, even though, like, she directly says in her kind of monologue like oh, if, if 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 he didn't survive i would have i wouldn't have named you elvis to her son and stuff like that i think as an audience member you can kind of like take it either way do you know what i mean because it's not like he doesn't really have any like well, he has hardly any dialogue after that do you know what i mean and it's neither really do much outside of the voiceover once once he goes in the bathroom and talks to once he talks to Elvis for the second time as mentor, he says and doesn't say another word. He steps out, gets shot, and then we just get him in flashbacks with an eye patch and uh, him dancing with the sun. He never says another word. Yeah. And for her, I mean, she does. I mean, you know, he's but, kind of out of focus, right? As well, he's kind of he's it, it always reminds me of that. Uh, well, the movie moves from it being about him in the beginning to passing on to her at the end. Like we realize that the whole person telling the story the whole time has been Alabama, which is why she had the voiceover in the beginning and she tells it at the end because it's her story. It's technically not his, and we don't realize that until really to the end because you think, oh, first person we see is Clarence, but the first person we hear is Alabama, mm. and it's her story. This movie is told from Alabama's perspective of how things went, which when Blue Lou Boyle tells him that there was a massacre, all she knows, which is why she's telling the story, is what she was told by Clarence. She doesn't know. So as far as she knows, the events that went down went down as he told her. He very well could have gone and killed everybody, which is something you don't think about until you start to realize whose voice this movie's actually told by. Yeah, I think that is interesting, isn't it? Because obviously there is a thing that, like, there is a reading of this film that he is unhinged. Do you know what I mean? Like it is kind of his his unhinged ego that gets them in this mess. <laughs> yeah. And possibly like the kind of uh that idea of him dying makes sense because it is that thing of like it's almost like the Scarface thing that if you keep if you and it's, it almost makes it more like a fairy tale and like a, a cautionary tale of if you go out chasing that quick buck and try and like get involved in this world of crime, it's not gonna it's not going to end well for you because, like, do you know what I mean? If you're going to get in over your head, and <laughs> the, the only way is you're going to die. It's like, yeah, it's like it's almost like that revenge. It's like TLC said, don't go chasing waterfalls. Yeah, or like... Stick to the <laughs> stick to the rivers and the streams that you're used to. Don't go going for the big stuff. You're just yeah, like, you're not made for this. What's the, like, if um, in regards to, like, revenge, like, oh, if you're going to seek revenge, like, to kill someone, you best, be, you best dig two graves. And it's like karmically it makes sense right it's like when you get to the end of it everything's kind of at balance like his his life has been taken for drexels like do you know what i mean all, all, all is yeah all is kind of at even kill and it's it's just it's just alabama and her son and kind of her telling this story yeah i think i i i think you can interpret it as he doesn't he doesn't doesn't survive if you want to do you know what I mean if you kind of well you know I was thinking the same I was thinking you know because she's still telling this this thing and like you're so cool he could have this could have been a story told later too that he did die you know what I mean like he could die down the road and you know just at this moment we're seeing that he lived so who knows it's such a great fucking movie and almost we're getting close to 30 years since it came out and it holds up it is yeah 
one of those movies that is just absolutely I'm in love with it. Like as the more we've talked about, it's in my top two. Like it is one and two. It may be one over Pulp Fiction. I, I don't know. It's so hard to tell. Like I watch Pulp Fiction. Go, oh, it's one, you know, they're my they're one A one B. How's that for me? Like because <laughs> true romance to me is it it's so much to me. It got me into everything. Like it's the gateway, but it it was such a good gateway that if I didn't love that movie so much, I never would have thought about going to get see Reservoir Dogs. But because I saw the person who wrote it created it, wrote that. I was like, I want to see what else this person did because I loved it so much and that was that. Like, that was that was it. Like, you know, that's, <laughs> that's a come to Jesus moment. So I was like, this is it. This is my new religion. Like, I will now do everything and love everything that this person does. And then, of course, you know, he paid it off with Reservoir and then Pulp. And so it was like three big ones in a row and I was like, I'm hooked. Like, I'm hooked for life. Like, you've got me. You know what I mean? Like, I'm in. I will take all the money I have and give it to you so I can go see your films. And I don't go to just one time. Like, I'll see it at least six times before it comes out. Theater. Like, I'm that incensed about it, you know? Because it's that thing. It's like, you know, you get to, it's an experience. You get to see it once every couple of years. And if he does want to do one more, it's that, I always say to myself, a Tarantino movie is currently out in theaters. Every time he's not out, I can't wait for the next one to come out. So while it's out in the theaters, I need to go see it as much as I possibly can. Because soon, I will go years without a Tarantino movie being in theaters. Yeah, That's yeah. The, just kind of the way I, I live it, you know? Unless you live in LA and you go to the new Beverly, which they're always... That is my, that is the mecca. <laughs> that before this podcast is over, I will go there. And I'm going... So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get a trip of people who want to go. We're going to go. I think the next movie he puts out, that's my goal. My goal is to go out there and see it in his theater. That is, I think, if it's his last film, I think that's what I have to do. I don't, I don't care. if I'll lose a job for it. Like, that's how crazy <laughs> I, I will go. Because you live once, and if you get a chance to do it, you gotta do it. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. What was your favorite song on the soundtrack? And I have an idea that is an orchestral piece because you, you sent me a message about it. And when I ask these questions, you, I, I have no parameters unless there's a parameter for it. Like, I, I'm not going to ask you what your favorite character is and you're going to tell me something from Disney. I prefer it to be something from Tarantino. No. But what is your favorite song from this soundtrack? Whether it's a selected piece or whether it's an or you know a created piece. Well, yeah, as much as there is the contention with the score of this, it's a it's a variation on the main theme, which is called You're So Cool by Hans Zimmer. But it's one called uh, I'm Your Son on the soundtrack, which it's like it's, it's, it, it's a variation on the theme and then kind of introduces these uh, like synth string elements to it. And it's really great. There's a couple of great ones on the soundtrack. There's one called Start Over as well, which has like... Almost like a, I, th- I think listening to the soundtrack in isolation, it might be because the time of recorded is around the festive period. But there is like an element of like a, a Christmas music element to it because yeah. in Start Over, there's this thing of like the melody itself kind of sounds like a like a hymn almost, like kind of like I'm trying to think of the, the the precise one. It's like without without hearing it, but yeah, it has this hymn element and it has like sleigh bells almost, or kind of like in the background and stuff like that and. Yeah, I think obviously people say that it's basically a rip off of the Badlands theme and I'm not I don't think that Hans Zimmer is like the fucking be all and end all when it comes to score writing because I know that he he's basically the the Damien Hurst of film composers that he just has a massive fucking team who like write pieces and then work under contract then he goes that'll be great that'll be great yeah <laughs> let's use that for for the film I'm working on that's why he can 
do near on every film that comes out in a year. Do you know what I mean? Like, which, <laughs> yeah. if you're a songwriter, nobody has that much creative juice to, to crank those out. Like, uh, yeah, I think when we arranged to do this, I just started listening to the score like all the time. It's like we've had like bright, cold, sunny days here. And it's it's perfect music to listen yeah. to on those days, like with the kind of like sun quite low in the air, but it's yeah. cold. Like there's something hopeful about it, and there's it's, it almost sounds a bit uh, either Peter Gabriel or like Robert Palmer elements yeah. to it, or even um, uh, was it uh, Paul Simon? Like uh, especially yeah. like the Graceland period. There's there's that element to the music which I I, I absolutely love. But yeah, and it's it's made me want to see Badlands. If that's the score for that, <laughs> it, it will surprise you when you hear it. Because I remember watching, like, I was like, Jesus Christ, sounds like, like true romance. Who was your favorite character from the film? I think this is a film that's really hard to pick. Yeah. Oh, I agree. There's a lot of great moments from a lot of great people. Yeah, and I just think my favorite character in it is the person who like just made me laugh the most and kind of is almost like an agent of chaos within this, and it's Elliot. And just those scenes. <laughs> wow, our, uh, that was I would not have guessed, Elliot. But yeah, Elliot, Elliot is the the linchpin for which all shit happens at the end. Yeah, and the, just those scenes he gets, and like the the um, uh, Bronson uh, Pino is like acting that moment when he's in the interrogation room when obviously he's had the like bag of cocaine thrown in his face, and he plays <laughs> somebody who clearly hires a kite being shouted at so fucking well and like that that scene in the elevator when he he's basically calling out to the police right he's like i wish somebody would come oh my god i know take take me away (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think i like it feels quite like a lot of them feel quite route one to go for do you know what i mean (laughs) yeah drexel could have easily i like it no that's that's a good it's a good guess i mean because he really wants i mean obviously Clarence and them cause their own issues, but the whole reason that uh, the cops are brought down upon them is because of Elliot. Because of all this stuff happens be- a lot because of Elliot. You know, I mean, who knows? Who knows how the movie goes if Elliot doesn't involve the cops? Who knows? Maybe Elliot involving the cops saves them. Who, it's hard to tell. You know, with chicken or egg on that one. What how things would have turned out without him? If you think about which door the mobsters come through, like they come through behind where they're all. True, Stat, like, but the mobsters would then have still had to deal with Boris and what's his name. They wouldn't have been as happy. Yeah, they would have come in behind those two guys, so that would have easily been a quick pop, pop, yeah. and then it's like, do you know what I mean? So yeah. I think, I think, I think as much as he is like the yeah, he's the catalyst, right? He's the catalyst for the drug deal in the first place because he's the the one guy that yeah. get rich knows that could possibly sell it, <laughs> yeah. and obviously he's 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 the one guy who kind of inadvertently saves them all while giving its own life by wrapping <laughs> them out by wearing a wire. What was your favorite line from the film? Mm, let me let me let, let me get into Oh sweet we're going to reading. All right, here we go. This, this is this, this, this is not a line. This is a this is a, a short speech. Um, it's fine. You it know is. what? The my last guest basically read the uh, I'm going to get a taco speech from Mr. White. So when I say line, I should have just said, "What's your favorite mo- like moment of him speaking?" Because there's so many great moments you could speak in. The one I, one I particularly love is, um, "I'm not eating because I'm not hungry. I'm not sitting because I'm not staying. I'm not looking. Uh, I'm not looking at the movie because I saw it seven years ago. It's the Mac with, Ju- with Max Julian, Carl Speed, and Richard Pryor. I'm not scared of you. I don't like you. In the envelope is some payoff money, 
Alabama's moving on to greener pastures. We're not negotiating. I don't like to barter. I don't like to dicker. I've never, uh, I've never had fun in Tijuana. The price is non-negotiable. What's in that envelope is peace of mind. My peace of mind is worth my, uh, that much, not a penny more, not a penny less. Marty, you know what we got here? Bronson. <laughs> <laughs> Just because, like... Uh, it's, no, it's it's fantastic because he's you're set up, like we talked about, you're set up by Drexel, just basically calling him out. You know, he, he's he got him down to a T. He sees who he is. He knows who he is. He comes in. He thinks he's got him, you know, weighed and measured. And the next thing you know... It's boom. He switches on you. You know what I mean? Like a lot of the villains in this film come in heavy and we think, oh, man, these guys are fucked. And then they kind of they twist it on him. Uh, Clarence does it to Drexel. Uh, His father does it to Christopher Walken's character. And then Alabama does it to James Gandolfini's character. Three of them spin it on them when like they're both on the back foot. It's almost a Rocky moment. You're like, oh, they're done. And then all of a sudden it's that haymaker out of left field. And you're like, oh shit. You know what I mean? It's like it's like a good rap battle where you think the first person has just laid down this great fucking rhyme. And you're like, no way. And then also like Eminem shows up and you're like, where the fuck did that come from? You know what I mean? Like where they pull this out of? Yeah, yeah. Kind exactly. Of um and it is it is possibly like it's the pivotal moment in the film where it's like we break into the like we, we broke over the rubicon into something else like we don't know until this point if kind of clarence has the kind of backbone in him to go through with these kind of delusions he has of being yeah. this charles bronson character and this is the moment he steps up to it and kind of puts the rest of the play of the plot in place so he does I've- but he also falls into it a bit too, which I think is what makes it more humanized. He was dead. He was done. He was about to be obliterated. There was a moment that the bad guys let their guard down again, like he should have learned from a second ago when he was just telling them, you know, bringing this envelope, and he was able to find him. But all the bad guys let their guard down. That's how the characters are able to surprise because they're overly confident and they don't. They look down upon their prey, which is what gets them ultimately dead. What was your favorite scene from the film? It's, I think it would be easy to say, like, um, the confrontations, like, in this, because there are so <laughs> There's many. a lot of them, yeah. There's so many good ones, but, like, I think, like, I've, I've kind of talked about it, but I think it is that, like, theme park bit and that phone call between uh, Clarence and Lee, just because... And that, that kind of whole sequence of yeah. the massive Tony Scott, like, uh, roller coaster, and then that that just wordplay of them talking mm-hmm. about Dr. Fargo and stuff and who's the actor who plays one second i got his name oh i know what you mean yeah he's fantastic as lee donowitz he's fantastic yeah it's uh saul uh saul rubinek yes but he plays this like he always kind of plays like a proper guy you can imagine him going hey bobby do you know what i mean he's kind of got that <laughs> <Yeah>. in his, <laughs> he's full of ego as well like it's kind of oh his, god yes his thing of like being like oh no they're cool like let him keep the gun it's like well that's the... and then he's like make him some sandwiches <laughs> these guys yeah, got yeah, so yeah. automatic weapons around him why don't you chill the fuck out go make some fucking sandwiches <laughs> so fucking crazy such a crazy little fucking line and not like that but just the way that you would you know you've got bodyguards with semi-automatic weapons you're in a major hotel room like the penthouse how sweet and you're like hey you go make some fucking sandwiches <laughs> it's just, yeah, yeah. just so arrogant and just the way that like yeah saw rubenek is like in the car and you've got that interplay between trying to have this conversation which is kind of dialogue heavy and very like talking in talking in code and then he's like they're trying to deal with like some guy like undercutting him and being like what is it he's like 
don't fucking know. pick a lane, asshole. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. don't you put the middle finger up at me. And then kind of like cut it back. Have you fucking forth. killed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have you fucking killed? Yeah. Oh, I love so that. So good. It's so satisfying to watch, even though like, and the, the film has set it up in a way that it's believable as well. It is this heightened kind of um, slightly oversaturated world we're in where a conversation like that is understood from moment one and makes total sense and I absolutely fucking love it. And that's a wrap on our second episode. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Petros Petsilovis of the Caged In Podcast for joining me today. I had a blast discussing this film, amongst other things Tarantino and Nicolas Cage related. If you're a fan of the great Nicolas Cage, or even on the fence about him, then I highly suggest you give his podcast a listen. You can find it on all major podcasting sites. And also be sure to follow him on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Caged In Pod. Now you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on the Church's Facebook page, at Church of Tarantino, or on Instagram, at the Church of Tarantino, and on Twitter, at Church of Q. Pod. And be sure to check out our brand new YouTube channel to stay up to date on our weekly Tarantino vs. Top 5s. So be sure to join me again in two weeks as my good friend Matt LaPlante once again stops by for our monthly Tarantino Bible study as we sit down to dissect and discuss the Sicilian scene from True Romance. Until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.